Nonprofits are trying to help the thousands of undocumented Venezuelan migrants in the U.S. legally as they await immigration court hearings. Their first question is, hey, where can I get work? And I'm like, hey, legally you have to get a work permit. But they don't yet qualify for work permits. It is Wednesday, October 19th. This is WBUR's All Things Considered. Good afternoon. I'm Sharon Brody in for Lisa Mullins. Russian President Vladimir Putin has ordered martial law in four Russian-occupied territories of Ukraine. Also, a year after Boston officials said the tent encampment near Mass and Cass would have to go, one organization has moved 150 people into permanent housing. The minute that you close that door behind you and you have your own space in your own bed in your own kitchen, you can start to think about your legal problems, your family issues, your substance use issues. It is 401. Now, this news. Live from NPR News in Washington, I'm Lakshmi Singh. The Biden administration will be releasing 15 million more barrels of oil from the U.S. Strategic Petroleum Reserve in December. President Biden says that and other actions will help bring down gasoline prices nationwide, which are still on average more than 50 cents higher than they were a year ago. Biden also urged big oil to make sure gas prices fall in concert with oil prices. My message to the American energy companies is this. You should not be using your profits to buy back stock or for dividends. Not now. Not while a war is raging. You should be using these record-breaking profits to increase production and refining. At the White House today, Biden announced the government also planned to buy oil when prices fall to $70 a barrel from their current levels that are roughly $10 to $15 higher. Russian President Vladimir Putin has declared martial law in parts of Ukraine that he claims to have annexed but are still widely recognized as part of Ukraine. NPR's Michelle Kellerman reports President Biden says Putin's actions are desperate. President Biden says he thinks Vladimir Putin finds himself in an incredibly difficult position and is trying to intimidate Ukrainians into capitulating. State Department spokesperson Vedant Patel says Putin is resorting to desperate tactics to try to enforce control over the parts of Ukraine he wants. The truth is, is that Russia is not wanted in these regions and the people of Ukraine are rejecting Russia's illegal invasion and seizure by force of what is Ukrainian territory. The U.N. General Assembly voted overwhelmingly to condemn Russia's attempted annexation of parts of Ukraine, calling it a violation of the U.N. Charter. Michelle Kellerman, NPR News, the State Department. A Food and Drug Administration panel made an unusual move today to withdraw a pregnancy drug called McKenna from the market. A group of advisors says the data don't yet show the drug prevents preterm birth and other complications. NPR's Yuki Noguchi reports the drug is a test case for a controversial FDA program that allows drugs to get early approvals. Sometimes a drug shows early promise treating serious conditions like cancer or, in McKenna's case, preterm birth. By accelerating approvals for those drugs, the FDA allows the companies to sell the treatments to patients before all safety and effectiveness studies are complete. But that practice has come under fire, especially when some of those drugs later prove ineffective. The FDA's advisory committee says subsequent data showed McKenna failed to live up to the clinical promise that won it early approval in 2011. McKenna's maker, Cobus Pharma, fought the withdrawal, which will take another several months to finalize. Yuki Noguchi reporting. It's NPR News.
This is 90.9 WBUR. I'm Sharon Brody in Boston. There is new fallout from allegations that a former Woburn police officer helped plan a white supremacist rally in Virginia. Public defense lawyers in Massachusetts are requesting information about the work the officer did in Woburn. The rally in Charlottesville led to the death of a woman. She was killed by a driver who rammed his car into a counter-protest. WBUR's Deborah Becker reports. The Committee for Public Counsel Services said every case involving former Woburn police officer John Donnelly should be thrown out. The agency is seeking all case documents and disciplinary records pertaining to Donnelly during his seven years as a police officer. Donnelly resigned as an officer Monday amid accusations that he was actively involved in the 2017 Unite the Right rally in Charlottesville. Woburn officials say the investigation of Donnelly continues and Middlesex County prosecutors say they are reviewing all criminal cases involving Donnelly. For 90.9 WBUR, I'm Deborah Becker. Teachers in Malden have approved a new contract they hammered out with the city Monday night. That agreement followed a one-day strike Monday. The city school committee still needs to ratify the pact. In Haverhill, negotiations are underway this afternoon between the city and its teachers union. Teachers there have been striking since Monday. They're seeking better pay and increased staffing levels. The two sides nearly struck a deal yesterday before negotiations stalled. Governor Baker's pardons of four men are a done deal. Today, the governor's council unanimously approved Baker's first ever pardons for criminal offenses. It did so without interviewing any of the four men. All four were convicted of low-level crimes, including larceny, assault, and trespassing. The crimes date back 30 to 50 years. Governor Baker said the men have shown a commitment to rehabilitation. In the forecast, clear skies tonight with lows in the low 40s. A sunny Thursday, tomorrow's temperatures in the upper 50s. And on Friday, sunshine with highs in the low 60s. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by the Wheeler School, where learning is an adventure. From lower school neuroscience to upper school arts. Open house this Saturday for K-12. WheelerSchool.org. And Fidelity. With Fidelity Income Planning, Fidelity looks at how much clients saved, how much they'll need, and helps them build a plan for cash flow so they can go from saving to living. Fidelity Brokerage Services, LLC. From NPR News, this is All Things Considered. I'm Elsa Chang in Culver City, California. And I'm Sasha Pfeiffer in Washington. For close to two months, Ukraine has been reclaiming land that Russia occupied early in its invasion. Today, Russian President Vladimir Putin seemed to signal his frustration. He ordered martial law in four Russian-occupied territories of Ukraine, the same territories Russia just annexed unilaterally. That move likely signals more restrictions in occupied Ukraine and in Russia itself. NPR's Charles Maines is in Moscow and has details. Hi, Charles. Hi there. What did Putin have to say? You know, well, Putin made this announcement in a video address to his security council. Uh, you know, as you note, that the headline here was imposing martial law on these lands that he annexed uh, based on the results of staged referendums to join the Russian Federation. Those were done in violation of international law. But the thing to remember is that even then, you know, Russia never had full control over these territories. And in the weeks since, Ukraine has seized back large portions of land with Russian forces repeatedly withdrawing and even civilians being asked to relocate. And all of this much to Putin's frustration. Let's listen. 
So here Putin says that what he called regime in Kyiv has refused to recognize the will of the people. Russia carried out these referendum votes, and instead of sitting down at the negotiating table, Ukraine keeps fighting. So today's announcement is Putin trying to crush this uh, Ukrainian counteroffensive by tapping even more of his security apparatus. And he's doing that by arguing Ukraine is now actually attacking the Russian homeland, uh, thereby triggering measures like martial law. Practically speaking, what does martial law mean both for Ukrainians in these occupied territories and for Russians? Well, Putin essentially tasked his government and security apparatus to come up with ideas to reestablish control over these lands. He's also imposed heightened security levels in regions adjacent to Ukraine, as well as slightly lower ones in Moscow and southern Russia. And, and all of these moves give the government all sorts of extrajudicial powers. Uh, you know, everything from travel restrictions, search and seizure, police can now detain people for up to one month without bringing charges, a forced resettlement. Uh, but the key is implementation. You know, for example, right away the Kremlin said they had no intention of sealing the border. Uh, but that's far from a guarantee, and certainly not much of one for government critics who already face an enormous pressure. How are people reacting to this? Well, it's mixed, as you might imagine, but let's start with Ukraine. You know, a top aide to President Volodymyr Zelensky said martial law in these occupied regions really doesn't change much. Uh, Kiev argues people there were already de facto living in a police state, uh, although it's worth pointing out that Ukraine itself has been under martial law since February. Uh, Russian governors say they don't plan to introduce new restrictions, at least not yet. But keep in mind, this comes on the back of governors being blamed for a very troubled and unpopular mobilization drive to get additional troops into Ukraine. So, so perhaps the local authorities are sensitive to that. Uh, and yet, in a more worrying sign, uh, nationalists who increasingly seem to have Putin's ear when it comes to Ukraine are cheering the news. Uh, for example, Ramzan Kadyrov, the strongman head of the Chechen Republic, uh, took to social media to say this was an excellent and long-awaited move. And he's among a group uh, that seems to argue that the only way Russia can win this conflict is by getting tougher. And increasingly, that looks to me not only with its military campaign against Ukraine, well, where we've seen all these recent intense bombardments of Ukrainian cities, uh, but also in Russia, now uh, with a further crackdown on perceived enemies at home. That's NPR's Charles Maines in Moscow. Charles, thank you for covering this for us. Thank you. Today, New York City opened a temporary emergency shelter to house and care for hundreds of migrants arriving daily on buses from the border. A record number of Venezuelan migrants have fled to the U.S. this year, and we have an update now about one of them. We first met Jose Albernoz about a month ago when he had just crossed the Rio Grande into Texas, and he came face to face with a local rancher. I'm exhausted, he said, adding that he had started walking at three in the morning. Albernoz turned himself in to the Border Patrol. A few days later, he was released into the U.S. And now, like many Venezuelan migrants, he finds himself in a kind of legal limbo. NPR's Joel Rose picks up the story from here. Jose Albornoz has only been in the U.S. for a few weeks, but things have been happening fast for him. His original plan was to head to New York and meet up with a friend from Venezuela. But when he got there, his friend had lined up construction jobs for both of them in Montana. He said, yeah, let's go. I came here to work. When you arrive here, you're lost, he says. You land in a completely unknown world. Albernoz is trying to make sense of where he is. 
He doesn't have a work permit, but he does have permission to be in the U.S. temporarily, which protects him from deportation. I'm undocumented, he says, but I'm not illegal. This immigration purgatory, lawfully present but not able to work legally, is where tens of thousands of Venezuelan migrants now find themselves. They've been released into the U.S. with a notice to appear in immigration court or instructions to check in with ICE when they get to their destinations. But the next steps, those are not so clear. They're not getting the things that they need, the information that they need. They don't know their rights. You know, they don't even know how to get around the city. Jay Alfaro is a social worker at the Church of the Holy Apostles in New York, which runs a soup kitchen a few blocks away from the Port Authority bus terminal in Manhattan. Lately, the church is serving hundreds of Venezuelan migrants a week with food and clothing. Alfaro says they all want to know the same thing. Their first question is, hey, where can I get work? And I'm like, hey, legally you have to get a work permit, you know? Uh, this is New York City, so we know there's kind of workarounds for that. Um, but I tell them, listen, you got to be careful, you know. Immigration authorities have just launched a new program that will allow up to 24,000 Venezuelan migrants to live and work in the U.S. legally. But the only way to get in is to apply from abroad. That means it won't help tens of thousands of Venezuelans who've already been allowed into the U.S. temporarily, including at least 20,000 in New York City alone. Many of those migrants could qualify for work permits eventually, but only after they've officially applied for asylum. That's not a quick or easy process, and these migrants say they can't afford to wait. Anderson Orlando holds up his phone. Look, he says, on the cracked screen, there's a video of flooding and destruction in his hometown in Venezuela. My family lost their home, Orlando says. I'm desperate to find work here, and I haven't found anything. Orlando is one of hundreds of Venezuelan migrants, all single men, staying at a shelter in an old armory building in Brooklyn. We spoke with several men on the street outside the shelter. 40-year-old Alexander Rosa says he worked as a massage therapist back home. Now the father of five says he's struggling to find any work at all because he doesn't have the right documents. When you try to get work in construction, they ask you for OSHA certification, Rosa says. If you don't have that, you can't work. If you don't have a social security number, you can't work. 2,000 miles away in Montana, Jose Albernoz has found what all the migrants in New York want, stable employment. There are many possibilities here, he says. If you come here ready to work, you have plenty of opportunity to pick yourself up. Albernoz is making decent money, $20 an hour, but he has other problems. Albernoz is sharing a hotel room with his friend because he needs a credit history in order to rent a place of his own. And he has document issues, too. I haven't been able to open a bank account because my Venezuelan passport has expired, he says. And the closest place he can renew it is in Mexico. That's going to be hard, Albernoz says, but I'll overcome it. Joel Rose, NPR News, New York.
To New York City now, where Sanitation Commissioner Jessica Tisch made a big announcement. We are about to do something that no one has had the political will or political capital to pull off over the past 50 years. The rats are absolutely going to hate this announcement, but the rats don't run this city. We do. That's right. Starting April 1st, 2023, New Yorkers will only be able to put their trash outside after 8 p.m. instead of after 4 p.m. Tish explained this is part of a move to try to curb the city's infamous rat problem. The biggest swing that you can take at cleaning up our streets is to shut down the all-night, all-you-can-eat rat buffet. Mayor Eric Adams joined Tish in the announcement with some of his own anti-rat views. Everyone that knows me, they know one thing, I hate rats. When we started killing them in Borough Hall, you know, some of the same folks are criticizing us now called me a murderer because I was killing rats. Well, you know what? We're going to kill rats. And council member Sean Abreu had more choice words about the city's rodents. We are taking the fight to the rats. This is not ratatouille. Rats are not our friends. Maybe I'm a different kind of rat. Maybe you're not a rat at all. Maybe that's a good thing. Hey! So, sorry, (laughs) Remy. It looks like you and your friends are going to have a slightly harder time finding garbage to eat from now on. But whether that'll make a noticeable dent in New York City's rat population remains to be seen. He's a TV star with multiple Emmy Awards, a Peabody, and millions of books sold. And now he's stepping into the podcasting world. We are talking about the beloved PBS character, Arthur the Aardvark. Hear more about Arthur's new podcast tomorrow afternoon on All Things Considered. Listen on the radio or try asking your smart speaker to play your local member station by name. You're listening to All Things Considered from NPR News. This is 90.9 WBUR. Good afternoon. I'm Sharon Brody. Coming up on All Things Considered, the puzzle of California gas prices. We are funded by you, our listeners, and by Road Scholar, creating educational travel adventures for adults around the world. Learn more at roadscholar.org learning. And the Boston Book Festival, in person in Copley Square on October 29th. Celebrate the power of words. More at bostonbookfest.org. In business news, Maine's lobstering union is asking the Biden administration to shield it from proposed new regulations. The new rules would include slower boat speeds and guidance on the use of ropeless fishing gear. The changes are designed to protect a dwindling population of critically endangered right whales. The union says if the new rules go into effect, then the rules will kill the state's lobster industry. On Wall Street, the Dow dropped 99 points to close at 30,423. The S&P closed down 24 points at 3,695. The Nasdaq ended the session down 91 points at 10,680. Marketplace has a full range of business news at 630 here on WBUR.
We are funded by you, our listeners, and by Langis School of Music's free Gessner Schocken concert, November 4th, Jennifer Curtis, violin, and Nilufar Shira Kamancha show the power of bowed instruments to forge cultural connection. And La Cuchara Cafe in Melrose, Latin American fair with a modern twist. Drop off office lunch catering for all occasions in Greater Boston. LaCuchara.com. Turn your old car into new news. Support the programming you love by donating your vehicle to WBUR. Learn how at WBUR.org slash cars. It is 57 degrees in Boston. In the forecast, clear skies tonight and lows in the low 40s. A sunny Thursday. Tomorrow's temperatures in the upper 50s. A little warmer on Friday. Sunshine highs in the low 60s. This is 90.9 WBUR. Support for NPR comes from this station and from Amazon Business. From small business to big enterprise and everything in between, Amazon Business works to help simplify the supplies buying process. Learn more at amazonbusiness.com. And from Procter & Gamble, maker of Nervive Nerve Relief. Nervive is designed to reduce occasional nerve aches, weakness, and discomfort in hands or feet due to aging. Learn more at nervivehealth.com. And from the listeners who support this NPR station. This is All Things Considered from NPR News. I'm Elsa Chang. And I'm Sasha Pfeiffer. Gas prices remain stubbornly high across the country. So President Biden has announced another release of oil from the country's strategic reserves. Fuel is most expensive in California. Prices there have been hovering around $6 a gallon. That's about $2 above the national average. NPR's Raquel Maria Dillon tried to find out why. Kevin Holmberg is filling up at a 7-Eleven in Martinez, a city near San Francisco. This is one of the cheapest gas stations in town. Holmberg even found a job doing junk removal closer to home so he can avoid a long, expensive commute. Oh my goodness, that was a stinger. So uh, I actually started working out here, so it, you know, it saves me almost 300 bucks a month. There are several reasons why Californians pay more for gas, says UC Berkeley energy economist Severin Bornstein. We have a higher gas tax, we have uh, environmental fees, a cap-and-trade program, a low-carbon fuel standard, and we use a cleaner burning gasoline. California has the cleanest gas in the world, he says. At the pump, that adds about 85 cents to the price of a gallon of gas. The drivers I talked to are fine with paying more to reduce smog, but environmental costs don't entirely account for the $2 difference between California gas and the national average. Most refineries outside the state can't meet California's strict anti-pollution standards. And two refineries right here in the Bay Area are switching to making biofuels instead of old-fashioned gasoline. Kevin Slagle with the Western States Petroleum Association, which represents oil refineries, says California's isolated gas market makes it more volatile. If a refinery needs some maintenance, for example, it's going to affect the market in times of high demand like we see right now. Deontay Reed, who drives for Instacart and was putting $70 a gas in his sedan, doesn't buy that explanation. He thinks the oil companies are taking advantage of the tight market. It could just be a gimmick, something that they just say so that they can keep it a little bit extra money. Could be. Is there any way we can figure that out? 
Bornstein says California's prices got even more inflated after an explosion at a Southern California refinery about seven years ago. And since 2015, we've averaged an extra 30 cents a gallon, higher than you could explain through the taxes, fees, and environmental effects. This gasoline surcharge has cost California drivers $40 billion, Bornstein says. If you're doing the math, it doesn't quite add up. There are environmental rules and the refinery explosion, but that doesn't account for every penny of the $2 difference between California and the rest of the country. So the real question is what to do about it. Governor Gavin Newsom wants to tax what he calls the excess profits of refiners and return the money to California taxpayers. The fact is they're ripping you off. Their record profits are coming at your expense. Oil companies complain that'll only make it harder to do business here. That's sort of the point. The state is trying to move its economy to greener fuels to slow climate change. But that transition will be bumpy, with price spikes when the market gets tight, until more renewables come online and more electric vehicles hit the road. In the meantime, compared to drivers in the rest of the country, Californians will continue paying more at the pump. I'm Raquel Maria Dillon, NPR News, Martinez, California. Anna Mae Wong was the first Chinese-American film star in Hollywood. And now she will be the first Asian-American person to be featured on U.S. currency as part of a program to celebrate distinguished American women. To reflect on Anna Mae Wong's legacy, I spoke with sociologist Nancy Wong Yoon, who studies race and racism in Hollywood. And I started by asking her to tell us about the roles that Wong was given in early 20th century Hollywood. She was, I think, seen as somewhat exotic. And so she played mostly like slave girls or Madame Butterfly type roles or the dragon lady villain. I mean, she starred in a movie called uh, Daughter of the Dragon where she literally played a dragon lady. No love now, no jealousy, just merciless vengeance. So she made do with what she had, but she also then decided, hey, I'm done with Hollywood. I'm going to go to Europe and do cabaret acts and learn languages. So she really was very modern, I think, even by today's standards. Right. But I'm so glad that you pointed out those early roles because, you know, while the U.S. Mint is celebrating her courage as an advocate for more multidimensional roles for Asian Americans, as you point out, her roles were often these like flattened representations of Asian women. I mean, you and I have spoken about some of these stereotypes. You just mentioned the villainous dragon lady. Um, You and I have talked about sexually submissive lotus flowers, the seductresses played by Asian actresses in the past. How much would you say that the very roles that Anna Mae Wong portrayed helped perpetuate those racial and sexual stereotypes? What do you think? I think they did, and not because of Anna Mae Wong's talent or her beauty, but those were the imagination surrounding what Asian women could be. But at the same time, she was a fashion icon. And I remember she also dressed up in tuxedos and top hats and all sorts of, I think, subversive ways of looking at what an Asian woman could be. And, you know, as we're talking about right now, she faced a lot of discrimination throughout her career. In fact, she even went to Europe where she did find quite a bit of success in French and German films. What in your mind is the significance of having Anna Mae Wong's face on the American quarter so many decades after her film career? 
I don't think we think of classic Hollywood as encompassing someone that looked like her. She is part of U.S. and Hollywood history, right? She was born in 1905. And when people say, go back to your country, I can think about Anna Mae Wong. She's been here. She's part of Hollywood classic movies. And, and she also embodies something, I think, modern. She reminds me that we still have a ways to go because the dreams that she had of having multifaceted roles, I think we're starting to see some of that, but we haven't fully achieved all the stories. I think about Michelle Yeoh in Everything Everywhere All at Once, how shocking that was to see an immigrant woman, you know, in her 50s, just being all a sorts superhero. of different things. Yes, a superhero. I know that Anime Wong would have been so excited. Well, yeah, I mean, you mentioned Everything Everywhere All at Once starring Michelle Yeoh, but you know, we've also seen movies like Crazy Rich Asians. We've seen directors like Chloe Zhao find success and Academy Award, all this acclaim. What do you see as Anime Wong's enduring legacy in Hollywood when you look at how Asian representation has evolved since she finished acting decades ago? I could just imagine her sitting around uh, sipping some tea, maybe drinking some champagne <laughs> and looking at all the roles that are out and saying, oh my goodness, I wish that I was here auditioning and being offered roles. At the same time, I would say she, she would, you know, still say like, hey, you know, we need more. She would celebrate, but also I think still critique because that's who she was. She would just call things out. She wasn't worried about Twitter canceling her. <laughs> exactly. She was fierce until the end and now she's on the American Quarter. That is Nancy Wong Yoon, author of Real Inequality, Hollywood Actors and Racism. Thank you so, so much for joining us today, Nancy. Thank you, Elsa. I love talking about anime Wong. This is NPR News. This is 90.9 WBUR. Good afternoon. I'm Sharon Brody. It's 429 and ahead on all things considered how the nonprofit Elliott Community Human Services has led the effort to find housing for people who are living in a tent encampment at Mass and Cass. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Bentley University, where students learn the power of good business and how it can make the world a better place. Bentley University, a force for business, a force for good. MathWorks. Creators of MATLAB and Simulink software powering the engineering design workshop exhibit at the Museum of Science. MathWorks.com slash MOS. And Greater Boston Stage Company's world premiere play, The Legend of Sleepy Hollow, a haunting humorous treat. Opens Friday in Stoneham. Tickets at greaterbostonstage.org. The timber supply chain is messy. It's kind of like a narrow neck funnel that slows down the flow of timber or logs uh, from private non-industrial forest owners to the sawmills. But cleaning it up could help limit wildfires. I'm Kimberly Adams, next time on Marketplace. Tonight at 6.30 on 90.9 WBUR, Boston's NPR News Station. Live from NPR News in Culver City, California, I'm Dwayne Brown. President Biden announced further steps to release more of the nation's oil supply in response to looming production cuts by OPEC+. It's his latest action to temper high gas prices that have contributed to soaring inflation, but Biden rejected criticism that he was motivated by politics and next month's midterm elections. White House Press Secretary Karine Jean-Pierre says December's draw of 15 million barrels will be the last in 
previously announced series of releases. The Strategic Petroleum Reserve was created for this time, for a moment just like this, when there is a supply disruption uh, that is, has been caused by Putin's war. This is why the reserve exists. Gasoline prices have eased a bit nationwide, with the national average dropping to $3.87 a gallon, while here in California, the nation's most expensive gas prices have dropped to $6 a gallon on average, down nearly 30 cents in just the last week. A top European official says Moscow is committing terrorist acts by targeting civilians in Ukraine. From Brussels, Terry Schultz tells us the comment comes as Russia continues its ongoing assault on Ukraine's infrastructure. EU Commission President Ursula von der Leyen says Russia's drone and missile attacks against Ukrainian civilians and infrastructure mark what she calls a new chapter in an already very cruel war. Speaking to the European Parliament, von der Leyen labeled the attacks war crimes. With a clear aim to cut off men, women, children of water, electricity and heating, with the winter coming, these are acts of pure terror. And we have to call it as such. The EU Commission chief says the bloc is doing everything it can to protect Europeans against the effects of Russia's war and that it will stand by Ukraine as long as it takes. For NPR News, I'm Terry Schultz in Brussels. After a two-day run-up, stocks finished lower on Wall Street. This is NPR. This is 90.9 WBUR. I'm Sharon Brody in Boston. People experiencing homelessness will no longer be allowed to gather and set up tents along part of Southampton Street in Boston. Mayor Michelle Wu says the area has become too dangerous with people walking in traffic and almost being hit by cars. Earlier today, the city told people to move their tents and belongings to a side street instead. About a year ago, the city removed hundreds of tents from the area, the epicenter of the region's homelessness and opiate crisis. Wu says the city will continue to provide services to those in need, and Wu says more funding is needed to meet the demand. Three clergy members are chained to the entrance of Faneuil Hall this afternoon. They chained themselves to the building in protest of its namesake's ties to the transatlantic slave trade. The activists want the name of the historic building changed. WBUR's Amelia Mason has more. One of the activists, Reverend Kevin Peterson of the Metropolitan Baptist Church in Dorchester, demanded that the Boston City Council hold a hearing to discuss changing the name of Faneuil Hall. Having a hearing around racism is important, it's imperative, and it's vital. And for our politicians to, to kick the can and ignore this issue is a show of cowardice. A spokesperson for the city did not comment directly on whether the city council or Mayor Michelle Wu would address the protesters' demands. The activists said they were willing to be arrested for their protest. For 90.9 WBUR, I'm Amelia Mason. The state is spending $15 million to help repair four aging highway tunnels beneath Boston. The money will be used to plug leaks and fix worn-down surfaces in the Tip O'Neill Tunnel, the Ted Williams Tunnel, and the Sumner and Callahan tunnels. Hundreds of thousands of drivers use the tunnels every day. Officials say most of the repairs will take place at night, although it is unclear when the work will begin. It's 434. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by BU's Metropolitan College. With over 70 part-time graduate programs in high-growth areas, such as analytics, global marketing management, health informatics, financial management, and software development. Graduate Admissions Informational Webinar, Tuesday, October 25th. More at bu.edu slash met slash events. 
and Peabody Essex Museum with after-hours events, spooky tales, films, and more this October. Info at pem.org slash Halloween. It's 57 degrees in Boston, lows in the low 40s tonight, sunny tomorrow, highs in the upper 50s. This is WBUR. Support for NPR comes from this station and from Fidelity. With Fidelity Income Planning, Fidelity looks at how much clients save, how much they'll need, and helps them build a plan for cash flow so they can go from saving to living. Fidelity Brokerage Services, LLC. And from Indeed, designed to be an end-to-end hiring solution to help businesses attract, interview, and hire candidates all from one place. Learn more at indeed.com NPR. And from the Annie E. Casey Foundation. It's All Things Considered from NPR News. I'm Sasha Pfeiffer in Washington. And I'm Elsa Chang in Culver City, California. With just 20 days until voting ends in this year's midterm elections, Georgia is one of many states with high-profile races. And an insidious false narrative has taken hold there among far-right voters. As NPR's Lisa Hagen reports from the Atlanta suburbs, it involves QR codes. You know those square barcodes that your phone can scan? In the last year, election officials around Georgia have gotten an earful about what some say is at the center of an outrageous criminal plot. Here's a sampling from recent public meetings in Forsyth County, outside Atlanta. QR code. QR code. QR code. Just heard about QR code. I look at a QR code. I'm telling you what, I'm not a computer. I can't read one. I can't read the QR code. When Georgians vote, they get a printout that lists the candidates they chose, plus a QR code printed onto the page so a machine can scan and count ballots faster. But citizen activists like Gary Johns insist they've seen proof that Georgians' votes are being systematically flipped by the state's voting machines. You're being asked to vote on an illegal procedure on machines that have been compromised. There's no evidence compromised machines altered election results. But when Georgia's voters narrowly backed President Joe Biden in 2020, the state became a hotbed for election conspiracy theories, amplified by Trump loyalists. Since then, many election deniers here have shifted focus to the future. Their demands vary, but one constant is that they want to ditch voting machines for hand-counted paper ballots. But that's a process experts warn would come with more human error and delays. Delays that in 2020 were a major complaint of people like Dylan Stevenson, a Forsyth County resident who voiced his suspicions of QR codes at his local election board meeting. Just know, my God, I just saw what I saw. You know, that night, I stayed up all night and saw all of that happening behind the at three in the morning, four in the morning. Georgia lawmakers and election experts have tried to answer questions about the state's voting process. But the audience they're trying to reach has been taught to believe all those experts are either liars or fools. Many of the Georgia activists have taken in hours of instruction from a variety of election-denying speakers who crisscross the country. Among them is former Arizona sheriff Richard Mack. Of all the conspiracy theories, take all of them put together, times it by 10, and that's how bad everything is. Mack wants like-minded sheriffs to confiscate ballots after the upcoming election as evidence of this supposed plot. Other speakers encourage tailgate parties to monitor ballot drop boxes. 
The idea that election denial is a belief needs an update, says New York University historian Ruth Ben-Ghiad. She says it's evolved into a set of actions. Ultimately, the goal of those who are denying elections is to delegitimize elections in the absolute. She's an expert on Italian history and sees troubling parallels from the past, specifically with the rise of Italian dictator Benito Mussolini in the 1920s. He tried to make elections uh, associated in the public mind with corruption and also threat. There is little chance these activists will force Georgia to abruptly shift to paper ballots. But for this November, they've come up with a way to avoid the QR codes they so mistrust. Their advice? Don't vote early. Don't vote in person on Election Day. Don't mail in an absentee ballot. Instead, plan to apply for absentee ballots and hand-deliver them the evening of Election Day. And if all that should fail to produce a Republican victory, all the more confirmation American elections are rigged. Lisa Hagan, NPR News. Now, Georgia Public Broadcasting's Stephen Fowler is here to give us more context for this fight over QR codes and touchscreen voting machines. Hi, Stephen. Hey there. Stephen, electronic touchscreen voting machines are not new in Georgia. They've been around for quite a while. When did people start objecting to them and what were their concerns? In 2002, Georgia's Democratic Secretary of State switched from a grab bag of every county being able to pick its own election equipment to a uniform electronic voting system where you pick your choices on a touchscreen and the votes were saved on a memory card. Several groups, mainly these left-leaning voting organizations, had some concerns about that. Lack of a paper trail for humans to check, potential cybersecurity concerns, and more recently, that technology and software being outdated. In 2017, some activists sued Georgia, saying electronic touchscreens violated the Constitution, and they had evidence of errors in recent elections that meant that it needed to be changed imminently. That lawsuit is still ongoing, even though we do have a new voting system in Georgia that rolled out in 2020. So to repeat, there is a new voting system. It's been there for about two years, but the lawsuit did not go away. Why is that? Right. So the voting rights groups say Georgia's new system does address some of the issues because the new voting system is still a touchscreen, but it prints out a piece of paper that has the text of your choices and a QR code, like we heard about, that scans the voters' choices and makes it easier and faster to count. They still have concerns about these QR codes and uh, other cybersecurity issues. That's where it gets interesting. These far-right election deniers that we just heard about have now co-opted that lawsuit and some of the language to argue the whole thing is illegal and led to rigged results in 2020, taking some of these more legitimate questions about touchscreen voting and molding them to reject things they don't like. And like we heard in Lisa's story, these people are insisting upon more authoritarian remedies, and the local and state elections experts who are the ones in charge are misinformed and not these people. Stephen, on the surface, it sounds like these groups have concerns in common, but you're saying that's not the case? Well, in some ways, Sasha, it boils down to this. One side says they've got evidence voting equipment and rules are keeping some people from freely and fairly voting. The other alleges, without evidence, I should add, that a vast conspiracy is manipulating results to hurt pro-Trump candidates, and their solution is to eliminate voting options they don't like. These are not the same. We are just weeks away from the midterms. Georgia is one of many states expected to have close elections again. Is that closeness affecting the level of trust voters have in the election system? 
Absolutely. I mean, organized opposition to voting is not something that's just isolated to that one county we heard. It's videos and anecdotes from all over the state and really many places all over the country where these presentations are given without evidence that voting equipment, more specifically QR codes, are illegal. And it's having a negative impact. There's a county in Georgia where the Board of Commissioners voted to ask the state to get rid of the voting machine. And we've had several local Republican Party groups claim to decertify the 2020 election. And local election offices are being bogged down with these complaints and even lawsuits as they're trying to run elections here in Georgia. Now, to be clear, Democratic-leaning groups suing over QR codes because of cybersecurity concerns are not the same as calling elections officials traitors and showing up and harassing them over these things. But the overall question surrounding how Georgia's election system works has led people to be down on democracy and, frankly, more primed to not accept unfavorable results. Pretty depressing. That's Georgia Public Broadcasting's Stephen Fowler. Thank you, Stephen. Thank you. listening to All Things Considered from NPR News. For U.S. sports fans, it's that time of year when four major pro leagues are all underway, football, hockey, baseball, and basketball. About those last two, a new NBA season began yesterday, and the Major League Baseball playoffs are down to four teams. NPR's Tom Goldman joins me now. Hi, Tom. Hi, Sasha. Tom, baseball first and the two league championship series. Both are being played today. Am I right to say one of those series feels like a surprise and the other was totally predictable? You are right, Sasha. Uh, The surprise is in the National League where the Philadelphia Phillies are playing the San Diego Padres. The Phillies hadn't been to the postseason since 2011, and then after beating a division winner, St. Louis, in the wildcard round, they upset the defending champion Atlanta Braves in the round preceding this championship series against San Diego. And the Padres a surprise, too. Yeah, they they were a playoff team in 2020, but before that, they'd missed the postseason 13 straight years. This was supposed to be a breakout season for them with three hugely talented all-star players, Manny Machado and young stars Fernando Tatis Jr. and Juan Soto. But Tatis was banned a couple of months ago after testing positive for a performance-enhancing drug. And the expectations for the Padres plummeted after that. But in their division series, they beat World Series favorite LA Dodgers setting up this improbable National League Championship Series between two wildcard teams. So that's National League. Now the American yeah. League Championship Series opens tonight in Houston. Astros hosting the New York Yankees. This one not a surprise. No, it's not. Uh, Two teams uh, that were among those considered contenders heading into this season. But while the matchup was somewhat expected, there is a spicy history between the two. Houston, as we know, was found to have illegally stolen signs during the 2017 season when the Astros won the World Series. And along the way to that title, they beat the Yankees in the American League Championship Series. So even though New York players say they are focused on right now, there have been comments as recently is this season to indicate the Yankees still harbor some ill will toward Houston. All right, Tom, 
basketball. Last okay. night, the NBA season started, both teams. last uh, Both teams in last season's final winning won their open games. The Boston Celtics and the champion Golden State Warriors. Did we learn anything from their victories? Well, I suppose we learned that they appear ready to pick up where they left off, despite preseason controversy for both. Last month, Boston suspended its head coach, Ime Odoka, for this entire season for violating team policies. And then a couple of weeks ago, Golden State power forward Draymond Green punched his teammate, Jordan Poole, during a preseason practice. A video of the incident was leaked, and head coach Steve Kerr called it the biggest crisis his team had faced during his tenure. But last Last night, both looked good. Boston beat another strong Eastern Conference team, the Philadelphia 76ers, and Golden State beat LeBron James and the L.A. Lakers. And briefly, Tom, the Warriors returned to the top of the NBA season last season. They won their fourth title since 2015. Can they do it again? They can. Um, all the talk is about their depth and how Coach Kerr is going to have trouble finding playing time for all of his very good players, none better than guard Steph Curry, who last night at age 34 looked as good as ever. As long as they stay healthy, the question right now, who will play Golden State in the final? Boston again, maybe Philly, the Brooklyn Nets, Milwaukee, Miami. It's pretty wide open, other than the guys at the top, which should make it fun to watch. That's NPR sports correspondent Tom Goldman. Tom, thank you. You're welcome. This is All Things Considered from NPR News. This is 90.9 WBUR. It's 448. And ahead on All Things Considered, how one nonprofit found housing for people living in a tent encampment at Mass and Cass in Boston. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by BU's Metropolitan College. With over 70 part-time graduate programs in high-growth areas, such as analytics, global marketing management, health informatics, financial management, and software development. Graduate Admissions Informational Webinar, Tuesday, October 25th. More at bu.edu slash met slash events. And Peabody Essex Museum, with after-hours events, spooky tales, films, and more this October. Info at PEM.org slash Halloween. Coming to WBUR City Space Wednesday, October 26th. Here now co-host Robin Young interviews former Nickelodeon star Jeanette McCurdy about McCurdy's new memoir, I'm Glad My Mom Died. For tickets, go to WBUR.org slash events. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Delta Dental of Massachusetts, passionate about improving oral health across the state and reminding you that a healthy smile is a powerful thing. Visiting your dentist and taking care of your mouth could help protect your heart health and much more. Discover the connection between oral and overall health at expressyourhealthma.org. And Grogan and Company, fine art and jewelry auctioneers, assisting families with the sale of their paintings and jewelry for 35 Five years. GroganCO.com. Joe Caruso, owner of the Music Emporium, a WBUR underwriter. People come up to me and thank me for supporting WBUR, something that they believe in. Those are the people we want to reach, people that not only support and believe in what BUR does, but believe in what businesses that support BUR stand for. Explore how you can become a WBUR underwriter at WBUR.org slash sponsorship. This is WBUR's All Things Considered. I'm Lisa Mullins. When someone is homeless and sleeps on the street, 
it's not easy to help them find a permanent home and adjust to a new way of life. Now imagine what it's like to help 150 people do that. That's what workers from the nonprofit Elliott Community Human Services have done in Boston over the past year. They've led the effort to find housing for people who were living in a tent encampment near the intersection of Massachusetts Avenue and Melnia Cass Boulevard, or Mass and Cass. One year ago today, the city declared it a public health emergency. It had become an open-air drug market where disease outbreaks and assaults were common. Elliott Community Human Services already had been working with people there. It was certainly overwhelming to be in that area and to you know, have this list of close to 180 clients that we're trying to locate in a large tent encampment. Mark Bradshaw directs Elliott's housing programs. He says he and his colleagues took it one task at a time. Realistically, what our motto was from the beginning was to get one thing done a day for each client, and that could just be even one conversation. Elliott's teams usually go about their jobs quietly. Their work is largely unheralded, but could be considered heroic. Bradshaw and his colleagues went over to Mass and Cass every day. They were armed with mobile printers and forms for their clients to fill out once they could find the clients. You have to kind of get used to the layout of the actual tent encampment and know that this client's tent is on that corner, this client's tent is on that street. I've seen tents that, you know, have bookshelves and bureaus and TVs. I've seen tents that are tarps that are being held together by really shoddy poles and cement blocks. It's a wide spectrum, but realistically, they're all clients' homes. And it's our job to respect their space and to meet them where they are. What that looks like is going into that tent and doing that housing application in that tent. Allie Fisk directs outreach and engagement programs for Elliott. I think that the first thing that crossed a lot of our minds was that everybody had a story before this, um, and that was really important to us to get to know what that was. They used to play rugby for 20 years or, you know, all these really fun facts. It allowed us to really build rapport and to start establishing trust in the way that we were really wanting to get to know people. So people know each other. They've established a certain rapport with each other. You're coming in and saying, we want to move you elsewhere. Even if you're saying, we want something better for you. We want a safe, healthy place for you to be. How did you approach that? So I think we approached it in a way where we were understanding of the fact that people have been marginalized. They're homeless and, you know, experiencing substance use disorders and all sorts of mental health issues and not framing it in a way that we wanted to take anybody out of their community and move them elsewhere. But really, we want to make this right. A lot of the times what I tell my staff to, you know, frame this transition from the client is the minute that they're inside that apartment, it becomes a million times easier the minute that you close that door behind you and you have your own space in your own bed in your own kitchen. You can start to think about your legal problems, your family issues, your substance use issues, whatever they are, the minute you're inside, all of those issues become manageable. The folks from Elliott say many people they encounter on the street don't feel worthy of a better life, so the outreach workers try to show them they are. Hope Wiedenhofer oversees Elliott's programs that help keep people stable once they've got a home. She says her team asks clients about their goals so they can find purpose. You can put someone in an apartment, but they may not have a community. They may not have hobbies, right? They may not have things that make them happy throughout the day. I had a client who wanted to join a choir. She loves to sing. I've gotten multiple people pets. 
you know, taking care of something, right? Like a, a cat, that gives you purpose. We've got multiple people, bicycles, um, painting supplies, going back to school, going and getting a job, all sorts of things that you and I kind of take for granted, but living on the street, you don't have the opportunity to do. And once you get housed, you, you do have the opportunity to do those things. Some clients reunite with family. Wiedenhofer says there are big challenges too, but Elliot steps in to make sure as many people as possible hang on to their housing. I will also say we are serving over 170 stabilization clients right now and have less than a 1% eviction rate. We're the liaison between the landlord and the client. We help make that relationship such that the client can stay in that housing. There are a lot of other programs that have a sobriety requirement in order to get housing. We operate on a housing first model. So we have clients with substance use disorders, you know, have never seen a therapist or a psychiatrist. And getting housing is the first step to then meet with a psychiatrist, you know, pursue maybe a detox or a treatment center. But that's definitely not even close to a requirement for housing for us. Let me ask the other side of that question, though. I mean, if people are not sober, if they uh, have a problem with addiction, if they don't have a job, if they're in poor health, how are they going to maintain housing? we create a team around them. You know, they have a stabilization service provider and the stabilization service provider knows psychiatrists, knows doctors, you know, it helps get them Ubers to the doctor whenever they need it or go to the methadone clinic in the morning. I've definitely called people at 7 a.m. and said, are you on your way to methadone right now? If not, I will get you an Uber. It's a team that we create around these people. The biggest issue that we have come up when a client moves into a unit is not any substance use issues, it's not any mental health issues, it's not them damaging the unit, it's legitimately them bringing in their friends who are sleeping outside because they feel bad for them sleeping outside. Typically, their friends see them move in and they see a warm roof over their friend's head and they wanna sleep on the couch. You have to have some pretty frank conversations with clients about, you know, obviously we understand where you're coming from, but you worked really hard to attain this housing. So you have to, you know, find a different spot for your friends if you want to keep this apartment. Um, and we will do our best to work with your friends to find them housing as well. So you said 1% or less than 1% have been evicted. What is your goal for determining success? Our success is that if all of these clients are still in housing and they're living, you know, stabilized, normal lives, that is our success. We want to see them happy and thriving and settling into their new apartments. And we don't want to see folks back on the street. We don't want to see folks evicted. We want to wrap services around them and let them just go about their lives. That was Mark Bradshaw, Hope Wiedenhofer, and Allie Fisk. They direct housing, stabilization, and outreach programs for Elliott Community Human Services. Over the past year, the organization has found permanent housing for 150 people who were living on the streets of Boston's Mass and Cass area. This note, people still congregate around Mass and Cass nine months after the encampment was cleared. And nearly 200 people who were living there are still waiting for permanent housing. They are now in transitional housing and shelter programs the city set up. At WBUR.org, you can find the story of one man who was living at Mass and Cass, but has since been housed with Elliot's help, Revere native and former Red Sox minor league pitcher, Mike Spinelli. 
Support for NPR comes from this station and from Athena Health, creating connected healthcare technology designed to improve patient outcomes and increase efficiency of healthcare practices and organizations. Learn more at athenahealth.com. And from Indeed, designed to be an end-to-end -end hiring solution for businesses of any size to attract, interview, and hire candidates all from one place. More at indeed.com NPR. And from Paycom, an HR and payroll tool designed to prevent lost hours during the week to allow employees to maximize their time and productivity. Learn more at paycom.com radio. And from the listeners who support this NPR station. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Bass, Berry, and Sims Healthcare Law Practice, advising academic medical centers and healthcare providers on complex legal matters nationwide. More at BassBerry.com. And Brookline Bank, where financial solutions are crafted to the needs of your business and delivered with a hands-on approach committed to your success. Learn more at BrooklineBank.com. I'm here now, host Robin Young, and this is 90.9 WBUR-FM Boston, 92.7 WBUA-Tisbury, 89.1 WBUH-Booster. Listen anytime with our app or at WBUR.org. WBUR, Boston's NPR news station. A lot of Americans say they are extremely concerned about abortion rights. I'm pretty angry and, you know, I have some t-shirts that say, mind your own uterus, so they're getting a lot of wear. Democrats are trying to turn that outrage into votes. It is Wednesday, October 19th. This is WBUR's All Things Considered. Good afternoon. I'm Sharon Brody in for Lisa Mullins. Employment at U.S. factories is back to pre-pandemic levels, but factory managers say the situation is not back to normal. We've been looking for qualified welders for probably a year. The skilled people, the trained people, are very, very hard to find. Also, you'll hear about the family separation crisis in Massachusetts, and you'll get the story on a new study about the Black Death and immunity. It's 5.01. First, this news. Live from NPR News in Washington, I'm Jack Spear. Russian President Vladimir Putin has imposed martial law on regions of Ukraine that Moscow claims to have annexed. The move comes as Ukrainian forces continue to make progress in a counteroffensive to retake large portions of occupied lands. From Moscow, NPR's Charles Maines has more. In announcing the martial law order, Putin argued Russia was responding to continued Ukrainian aggression against the Kremlin's newly annexed territories. The Russian leader tasked his government and security apparatus with generating plans to better secure the territory's defenses. Members of a newly created emergency council said they would focus on producing and delivering more arms to Russian forces in the region. Meanwhile, a parallel presidential decree also imposed heightened threat level orders across regions inside Russia. The Measures give authorities broad new powers, including search and seizure, travel restrictions, and the detention of citizens for up to one month without charges or trial. Charles Maines, NPR News, Moscow. The Food and Drug Administration is signing off on another COVID-19 vaccine as a booster. NPR's Rob Stein has details on the Novavax shot. The Novavax shot uses a more traditional technology than the Moderna and Pfizer-BioNTech vaccines, and so might appeal to people who aren't comfortable with those. Anyone 18 and older who got any COVID-19 vaccine at least six months ago is eligible for the Novavax vaccine. 
Unlike the new Moderna and Pfizer-BioNTech boosters, Novavax only targets the original strain of the virus. The Moderna and Pfizer-BioNTech boosters target both the original strain and the Omicron subvariants infecting most people right now. But Novavax says its shot would help protect against Omicron. Only about half of eligible people have gotten any booster so far, raising concerns as the nation might be facing yet another surge. Rob Stein, NPR News. Home building activity slowed again last month as the cost of home loans continues to climb. More from NPR Scott Horsley. Builders broke ground on fewer houses in September than they did the month before. Single-family housing starts fell by nearly 5%. Permits, which are a guide to future home building activity, offered a more mixed picture. Permits for single-family homes were down in September, but permits to build multifamily housing were up. Rising interest rates have been a big drag on the single-family housing market. People are still buying laundry detergent and other household essentials, though. Procter & Gamble reported better-than-expected sales and profits for the most recent quarter. Sales volumes were down slightly, but that was more than offset by rising prices. P&G says it's raised prices on its products by an average of 9%. Scott Horsley, NPR News. Washington. On Wall Street, stocks gave back some of their recent gains today. The Dow was down 99 points to 30,423. The Nasdaq closed down 91 points. The S&P dropped 24 points. This is NPR. This is 90.9 WBUR. I'm Sharon Brody in Boston. The State Ethics Commission has dismissed a case against former state police leaders the Worcester District Attorney, and another staffer in the DA's office. The commission was investigating whether there was a conflict of interest when the parties got involved in an arrest report for a judge's daughter. The woman was arrested for drunk driving, and the arresting trooper alleged his commanders forced him to revise his arrest report to remove potentially embarrassing details. The commission ruled that a conflict of interest violation was not proven, The commission did say a court motion to redact portions of the report would have been a better solution. Massachusetts Attorney General Maura Healey is investigating millions of taxpayer dollars spent on medical masks that were never delivered. The money was sent to a Wyoming company. WBUR's Beth Healey reports the attorney general is trying to compel the company to comply with her probe. Healy's office is asking a Suffolk Superior Court judge to order the company, USIDG, to cooperate. It's been over two years since the state entrusted a string of little-known companies to provide emergency masks for frontline workers. The masks never came, and Healy alleges USIDG failed to return $16 million in taxpayer money. A spokeswoman for Healy's office says the company is stonewalling the investigation. USIDG representatives could not be reached Wednesday. Court records show the company also was under investigation by federal prosecutors in Boston and New York. The company agreed to provide the attorney general the same records it gave the feds, but has refused to appear for a deposition. For 90.9 WBUR, I'm Beth Healy. The organization behind a plan to install a monument for Martin Luther King Jr. and Coretta Scott King on Boston Common has changed its name. King Boston is now known as Embrace Boston. Imari Paris-Jeffries is the group's executive director and says the new name better reflects the group's mission to create a more equitable Boston. We expanded in our work from being an organization that was focused on building this memorial for Dr. and Mrs. King to an organization that was committed to the values of inclusion, belonging, and anti-racism. The name change comes about three months before the group unveils the Embrace Memorial.
It's 57 degrees in Boston, lows in the low 40s tonight, sunny tomorrow, highs in the upper 50s. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Arts Emerson's On Beckett. Bill Irwin's On Beckett, running at the Paramount Theater in Boston, October 26th through 30th. Get tickets at artsemerson.org. And Fisher Investments. As a fiduciary, Fisher Investments is obligated to act in their client's best interest. Learn more at fisherinvestments.com. Investments in securities involve the risk of loss. This is All Things Considered from NPR News. I'm Sasha Pfeiffer in Washington. And I'm Elsa Chang in Culver City, California. We are less than three weeks out from the final ballots being cast in the 2022 midterm elections. And Republicans are confident that they will take control of the House of Representatives. But Democrats are hoping they still have one advantage around how voters feel about abortion rights. After the Supreme Court's Dobbs decision overturning Roe v. Wade, Democrats think promising to protect abortion access is their key to holding on to the House. So what do voters make of all the messaging right now? Well, to discuss how the conversation about abortion rights is playing out on the campaign trail, we're joined now by NPR political correspondent Daniel Kurtzleben and NPR senior political editor and correspondent Domenico Montanaro. Hey to both of you. Hey there. Hey. Okay, so Danielle, I want to start with you because you have spent the last several months traveling the country, talking to voters about abortion and how it's impacting the way they're going to vote in this election. Tell me, how has the Democratic Party's focus on abortion messaging resonated or not resonated with voters? Well, with Democratic voters and also Democratic-leaning independent voters, it's resonating quite a bit. And to be honest, it's not even necessarily that the Democratic messaging is doing the work here. It's just that a lot of these voters heard the Dobbs decision and were so upset. And after that, we're looking for candidates who were just as upset as they were. Mm -hmm. uh, here is Wisconsin voter Joelle Beth Tim. I met her this summer when she answered the door to a canvasser for Democratic Senate candidate Mandela Barnes. I'm pretty angry. And, you know, I have some T-shirts that say, you know, mind your own uterus. So they're getting a lot of wear recently. So... Yeah, and it's you know absolutely an issue. Absolutely, quite frankly, it's probably the number one issue that I voted on in my life. Now, of course, it's not every Democrat for whom this is number one. I mean, there are a lot of concerns out there, but there are so many voters who have their own personal stories, who know their friends and family's personal stories. There are a lot of those people, and they are very, very fired up. Right. Okay, well, obviously, Domenico, Democratic voters are not all the same. So I'm curious, like, what kinds of breakdowns do you see on on age, on gender, on race when you look at polling on abortion? Like, for example, do women's voting patterns seem to be changing? Well, uh, first of all, abortion rights as an issue has clearly fired Democrats up across the board. And that's a huge thing because, you know, historically, the party in power loses seats, lots of seats in the House, 26 seats on average since World War II, for example, and Republicans only need five seats to pick up the House. So that's a big deal to have that sort of uh, that uh, water sort of rise for Democrats to be able to go to the polls. Uh, and, you know, that's really important because Republicans had a huge advantage when it came to the overall environment, inflation, the president's uh, low job ratings. And this has really uh, been able to fire up Democratic voters in a way, in particular women, uh, that we hadn't seen before that. Right. Well, you know, as we've been saying, we saw a lot of organizing around abortion when it came to voter registration, fundraising, et cetera. 
I am wondering, like, has that enthusiasm remained strong now, several months on, or, or has it waned? It's still very strong amongst the people who care. <laughs> I mean, it's, ah. my sense is that the enthusiasm is pretty baked in at this point. I mean, people who were energized by Dobbs very much still are. But as far as persuasion, it's hard to imagine Democrats swinging someone over to their side on this. Now, it is true that we have seen bumps in women registering to vote in some states mm -hmm. since the Dobbs decision, and that's no small thing. The big question for Democrats is if they can continue doing that. And furthermore, if it's this topic, reproductive rights, or something else that will get voters out the door. Well, Domenico, are there any particular key races where abortion is playing an outsized role at this point? You know, there's only about half a dozen or so really competitive uh, Senate races that are likely going to decide the chamber. And it's playing in all of them, frankly. Uh, you know, from Georgia to Arizona, uh, we're seeing it all over the place. And we're seeing it all over the place in uh, congressional ads. I've actually, frankly, been surprised in House races how much it's been used because so many of these places that are the are swing districts are center-right districts. And not only is that anecdotally telling me that it's key with independents who Democrats so badly need to win over to win those seats, but it also shows up in the data as well that, you know, we've seen majorities of independents say that the Supreme Court's decision actually makes them more likely to vote in this election and overwhelmingly for Democrats. So that's why you see Republicans using crime, for example, as one way to try to offset Democrats' perceived advantage with suburban white women to sort of pull at their dueling priorities. Danielle, as we've just heard Domenico explain that there are some moderate voters out there that could be influenced by the abortion issue, how are Republicans approaching the issue of abortion access? You know, Democrats, they keep talking about it. It feels like Republicans just want to talk about anything else, right? Right. Republican candidates, as far as I've seen, they're not bringing it up if they don't have to which is to say they will talk about it when they are attacked on it. And when they are attacked, they tend to have a sort of two-pronged response. One is they counter by trying to argue that their Democratic opponents are the ones who are extreme on abortion. Many of them also argue that states should be the ones deciding what abortion policy should be. Now, the benefit of that response for those Republican candidates is that it doesn't mean endorsing any particular solution or position that one could argue against. What it means is that those candidates don't have to come down specifically on what they want to do, just how they want to do it. Interesting. Well, Domenico, as you mentioned earlier, Republicans are instead focused on inflation and on crime, like hoping that fears about economic uncertainty will deliver them this huge victory in November. I am wondering, does the polling indicate that that is a safe bet for them to make? Inflation is still overwhelmingly the top issue, uh, and clearly that's the reason why they're using that, uh, because it's far easier to just blame President Biden and Democrats for inflation when polling is showing that people overwhelmingly trust Republicans more right now on the economy. So Republican strategists will say, focus on the economy. They're using crime and immigration as well as ways to also fire up their base and, again, to sort of try to mitigate Democrats' advantage with suburban women. That is NPR's Domenico Montanaro and NPR's Danielle Kurtzleben. Thank you to both of you. Hey, thank you so much. Yeah, thanks. Now, some interesting research about pandemics. No, not COVID-19. We're talking about a pandemic that swept across the globe nearly 700 years ago, the bubonic plague. 
A study out today shows that pandemic may have had a long-lasting impact on genes. It could be helping future generations survive other outbreaks. NPR's Michaeline Duclef has this story on the Black Death. In 1348, the bubonic plague arrived in London and hit the city extremely hard. Louise Barrero is at the University of Chicago and is a co-author of the study out this week in Nature. He says that so many people were dying so quickly that... There was no more place in cemeteries. Mm. So what happened is that the king at the time uh, bought this piece of land uh, and uh, they start digging it. This land turned into a mass grave with hundreds of bodies, some stacked five deep. In the end, the Black Death killed up to 50% of people in parts of Europe and the UK. That's a mortality rate that's nearly a thousand times larger than what we've had during COVID. Like we just went through this pandemic, right? Yeah. And we all think that it was insane and like it completely changed the world and our societies and all that, right? But we are talking at what? The mortality rate of 0.05%, something like that, right? Uh, now try to project, I mean, if it's even possible for you to, to try to project a scenario where 30, 50% of the population dies. Barrero is a human geneticist, and he wondered if the people in London who did survive the Black Death could have had some kind of advantage, perhaps something in their DNA, like a mutation that protected them. So he and his colleagues did something that almost seems like wizardry. They extracted DNA from the bodies buried at this mass cemetery, and also from the bodies buried before and after the plague. We just wanted to see if we were uh, able to identify particular mutations that would protect them against the agent that caused the black death. Turns out, they hit the jackpot. They identified not one, but four mutations that likely gave surviving Londoners an advantage. And the advantage was big. One mutation gave people a 40% advantage in terms of survival against the plague. David Enard is an evolutionary biologist at the University of Arizona. He says that 40% is the biggest evolutionary advantage ever recorded in humans. And survivors, of course, passed on that advantage to their descendants. It's faster and stronger than uh, anything we've seen before in the, in the human genome. And it's really pushing the boundaries of what we thought was possible. So it is a pretty big deal. One of the mutations in a gene called ERAP2 likely helped people clear out the plague infection quickly because it amps up the inflammatory response against the pathogen. This mutation has stuck around in the human genome for centuries, likely because it helps people fight off many pathogens. It's been advantageous to have them around uh, for many other potential bacterial or even viral epidemics. But this mutation also comes at a cost. Maria Avila Arcos is a paleogeneticist at the National Autonomous University of Mexico. She says the mutation increases a person's risk of autoimmune diseases, such as Crohn's. If your immune system is like super strong, then that can also lead to autoimmune diseases. More or less, that's kind of the balance. But the study, she says, has a big limitation. The Black Death struck Asia and parts of Africa. This study only tells us about a very small population of people, essentially Northern Europeans, which greatly limits the scope of the findings. There might be way more mechanisms, like population could have had like way more cellular mechanisms to cope with this like devastating outbreak. And so the question is, what other advantages might our genome have that could be helping to protect us against pandemics? Mikeleen Duclef, NPR News.
This is All Things Considered from NPR News. This is 90.9 WBUR. Good afternoon. I'm Sharon Brody. It's 518 and ahead on All Things Considered. A Mother Jones journalist discusses her reporting on the family separation crisis in Massachusetts. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Lauren Holleran with Gibson Sotheby's International Realty in Cambridge, real estate brokerage that is grounded in data and committed to thoughtful design. LaurenHolleran.com. And AAFCPAs, accounting, audit, tax, advisory, and wealth management for nonprofits, commercial companies, and individuals. AAFCPA.com. In business news, the largest air carrier at Boston's Logan Airport, JetBlue is a step closer to owning Spirit Airlines. Today, shareholders of Spirit voted to approve the $3.8 billion purchase, but the deal is not a sure thing. Federal antitrust regulators have raised concerns that the deal could hurt consumers by further consolidating the industry. On Wall Street, today the Dow dropped 99 points to close at 30,423. The S&P closed down 24 points at 3,695. The Nasdaq ended the session down 91 points at 10,680. Marketplace has a full range of business news at 6.30 here on WBUR. We are funded by you, our listeners, and by Bentley University's Executive Ph.D. in Business, a part-time doctoral program for professionals who want data-driven research skills to solve today's business challenges. And Comcast Business. Whether your business is starting or growing, Comcast Business is working to build a network to keep customers connected. Comcast Business, powering possibilities. It is 56 degrees in Boston, clear skies tonight, lows overnight in the low 40s. A sunny Thursday, tomorrow's temperatures reaching the upper 50s. Friday should be sunny with highs in the low 60s. This is 90.9 WBUR. Support for NPR comes from this station and from Fidelity. With Fidelity Income Planning, Fidelity looks at how much clients saved, how much they'll need, and helps them build a plan for cash flow so they can go from saving to living. Fidelity Brokerage Services, LLC. And from Easy Cater, committed to helping companies from nonprofits to the Fortune 500 find food for meetings and team lunches, tax-exempt ordering and delivery nationwide at easycater.com. From NPR News, this is All Things Considered. I'm Sasha Pfeiffer. And I'm Elsa Chang. Michael Rodney has experienced something that no parent ever wants to go through, having his children taken away from him by the state twice. And even though Massachusetts, where Rodney lives, promises hearings within 72 hours of a child being removed, Rodney had to wait weeks to get his day in court. And he's not alone. Those are the findings of Mother Jones reporter Julia Lurie, who saw a pattern of court delays in child welfare cases in Massachusetts. Delays, which Lurie found, disproportionately affect black and brown people. I asked Lurie to start by telling me more about Michael Rodney. Michael is a black father of six kids in western Massachusetts. And the Department of Children and Families, which is the Child Protective Services Agency in Massachusetts, got involved with his family in 2019. And Michael had assumed that this would be resolved pretty quickly, that a judge would hear the case and and return the kids to Michael's care. But the family had stumbled into what turns out to be a very common problem in Massachusetts. There's this huge delay in hearings. Well, when a child is removed from their parents by the state, generally what kinds of rights 
are parents like Rodney entitled to in the state of Massachusetts? When Child Protective Services removes kids against the will of their parents, state laws typically require a hearing before a judge within a matter of days, basically to make sure that CPS made the right decision. So those hearings are a really critical check on the power of CPS workers. And um, those decisions, of course, can be tainted by racial and socioeconomic bias. Black and brown families are far more likely to be investigated by Child Protective Services than white children. So in Massachusetts, those court dates are called 72-hour hearings because they're supposed to happen within 72 hours of an emergency removal. And at those court dates, all the parties, children and parents are supposed to have appointed lawyers. And if they can't afford one, which the vast majority of families cannot, then um, the, the state is supposed to appoint one. So what happened in the two times that Rodney's kids were removed? So in the first case, two weeks went by before the hearing when a judge found that Michael was a safe parent and that the kids should be returned to his care. And then in the second case in January of 2020, it took three months for that quote-unquote 72-hour hearing to happen. And this was incredibly painful for him to not be able to care for his kids, to be worried about how they were doing, to not be able to make his case before a judge. He kept going to court and he would wait there for hours. And here's what that looked like for him. We would sit inside of the juvenile hall, wait four or five hours to be heard, and then to be told that we have to come back tomorrow because the case before us took too long. Uh, so it, that feeling that I felt is a feeling that I really never want to feel again. Kind of felt like empty and lonely. He said again and again, he just felt like he didn't have much recourse. And so when he finally did get the hearing the second time, the judge granted custody back to Rodney. Exactly. And they have been together as a family ever since. Okay. I just want to step back for a moment because you found in your reporting that these delays to get a court hearing after a child is removed from their home, these court delays, they're widespread. Exactly. So what I found in terms of numbers is that of the 2,400 72-hour hearings that happened in Massachusetts last year, just a third of them had those hearings within three business days, and a fifth didn't occur for more than a month. And I found that the problem was particularly dramatic in Hamden County, which is the state's poorest county and one of its most diverse, and that is where Michael lives. In Hamden, two-thirds of the hearings were delayed by more than a month. So in essence, you have this court system that's meant to form a backstop of the child welfare system, making sure that CPS has acted appropriately, but the data suggests that that backstop is failing. Right. And... Also, to be clear, these court delays in child welfare cases, they are not just a Massachusetts problem, right? You found them across the country. There's no national data on just how often these delays happen, but anecdotally, they are very common. I actually heard from a number of lawyers, even after publishing this story, who said, we're seeing a variation of the same thing. We should explain that you found Child Protective Services they are not solely to blame for these chronic court delays. I mean, this problem of delays, it's, it's a lot more systemic, right? Can, can you just lay out the factors that contribute to these delays? So the problem broadly is that the court system cannot keep up with the number of CPS cases that are opened. So you have a number of problems. One is the high rate of CPS involvement. Again, particularly in the homes of black or brown families. Um, In Massachusetts, for example, black kids, like Rodney's kids, are two and a half times more likely to be involved in CPS than white kids. 
But then you also separately have a problem of court capacity. There is a chronic shortage of family lawyers who are able and willing to take on these cases. You know, these are long, complicated cases, and they're not particularly well paid. They're not particularly appealing for a lot of lawyers. And, and in the name of privacy, the courts are closed to the public. So you have a court system that um, is really impervious to public scrutiny. Well, in speaking to families and, and to advocates, like what kind of changes do they think could help improve these court delays? So child welfare experts that I've spoken to have pointed to a few changes. One is being much more judicious about removals to begin with um, and only removing kids from families that absolutely need to be removed. The second piece is investing more in family law. Um, one striking thing about what I found going on in Massachusetts is just how much money talks. This past summer, the problem of not having enough lawyers really came to a head in Hamden County in Massachusetts. So the state decided to offer a one-time $1,500 bonus to lawyers who would take these cases on. And within a matter of days, the backlog of cases had gone from 200 to zero. Everyone had lawyers. Money talks, just as you said. Exactly. Well, I know that all of Michael Rodney's kids are back home now. How are they doing? Do you know? The family has been living together since April of 2020, and things have really stabilized. You know, the trauma of being separated, particularly for that second stretch, those three months, has definitely stayed with the kids. The kids still talk about what it was like to be in foster care, and they get anxious when Michael's not with them. Even up until now, you know, they have like a, when they go with their grandparents or they go somewhere else other than where their parents are, they always want to come home. They never want to leave us. They always think that we're going to leave them there. Hmm. All of that said, Michael would say that kids are doing really well, all things considered. His voice actually really lights up when he talks about, you know, the sports that they're into and the classes that they're taking. DJ, Skyler, and Mylan, they do kickboxing, wells, all their other sports. Mylan is into soccer. He loves to follow me around. He wants to be just like me, my hair like me, every clothes like me, and stuff. And then we have a pretty girl, Skyler. <laughs> she loves to do her flips, dance. You know, everything's going well. We're both working. Um, we own a house. Um, we're, we're doing very well, you know. I'm really glad to hear that. Yeah, I am too. You know, especially after everything they've been through, it was really nice to hear about just these normal family moments. That was Julia Lurie of Mother Jones. Thank you so much for your reporting, Julia. Thank you so much for having me. This is NPR News. This is 90.9 WBUR. Good afternoon. I'm Sharon Brody. It's 529 and coming up on All Things Considered, the saga of an Iranian rock climber. She competed without a hijab. It's 56 degrees in Boston, lows in the low 40s overnight, a sunny Thursday. Tomorrow's highs in the upper 50s. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Bentley University, where students learn the power of good business and how it can make the world a better place. Bentley University, a force for business, a force for good. Chess, an ancient game of grand masters, grand strategies, and traditions that are now being upended by opportunities online. So much information is out there now. Competitive chess is just brutal. Who wants to be a grandmaster anyway when you can be a money-making chess maven on Twitch? That's On Point tonight at 7 on 90.9 WBUR, Boston's NPR news station.
Live from NPR News in Culver City, California, I'm Dwayne Brown. The Biden administration awarded almost $3 billion in grants today to boost manufacturing of batteries for electric vehicles in at least a dozen states. President Biden says a total of 20 companies will receive grants to build and expand domestic production of EV batteries as a key part of his strategy to slow climate change and build up U.S. manufacturing. These 20 companies are going to build new commercial-scale battery production and processing facilities all across America. They're going to develop lithium to supply over 2 million vehicles every year. And that $2.8 billion investment is going to unlock billions of dollars in private investment from these companies. Right now, China produces 79% of the world's EV batteries for electric and hybrid vehicles, which led to a serious supply chain issue this year. The president's sweeping climate and health care law passed back in August includes tax credits for electric vehicle buyers worth up to $7,500. New York City has opened a temporary emergency center to house and care for hundreds of migrants arriving daily on buses from the border. NPR's Joel Rose tells us it's a complex of giant tents on an island off Manhattan. The emergency relief center is supposed to be a temporary way station for hundreds of migrants who've been bused to the city from southern border states. The white, plastic-walled tents include cots for up to 500 people. City officials say they'll provide migrants with a place to get a warm meal, a shower, and help figuring out what comes next. The large influx of migrants, mostly from Venezuela, has put a strain on the city's homeless shelter system, leading Mayor Eric Adams to declare a state of emergency. But some immigrant advocates are disappointed by the city's decision to use tents instead of more permanent structures to house the migrants. Joel Rose, NPR News. Stocks finish lower on Wall Street. This is NPR. This is 90.9 WBUR. I'm Sharon Brody in Boston. Unions representing striking teachers in Haverhill are facing fines of tens of thousands of dollars a day. An Essex Superior Court judge today found both the Haverhill Education Association and the Massachusetts Teachers Association in contempt of an order to end their strike. Teachers in the city walked off the job on Monday to seek a new contract with higher pay. If the teachers are not back in the classroom tomorrow, then each union will be fined $50,000, and that fine will go up $10,000 a day each day the teachers remain off the job. Today marks one year since the city of Boston said the tent encampment in the Mass and Cass area was a public health emergency and would have to be removed. WBUR's Lynn Jolliker has more on how one nonprofit has housed people who were living there. Elliott Community Human Services has moved 150 people from Mass and Cass into permanent supportive housing since last October. Mark Bradshaw runs its housing programs. It's impossible to tackle a problem as big as addiction or schizophrenia unless you know where you're going to sleep that night. The agency's Allie Fisk says staff get creative if a client has a tough time transitioning from the streets to an apartment. Do we need to buy someone a tent to put in their living room for a little bit? using a hammock instead of a bed. Can you sleep at home three nights and then we can build off that? Almost 200 people are in transitional housing and shelters the city set up after it cleared the encampment. People continue to congregate in the Mass and Cass area. For 90.9 WBUR, I'm Lynn Jolliker. Governor Baker's pardons of four men are a done deal. Today, the governor's council unanimously approved Baker's first-ever pardons for criminal offenses. It did so without interviewing any of the four men. All four were convicted of low-level crimes, including larceny, assault, and trespassing. The crimes date back 30 to 50 years. 
Governor Baker said the men have shown a commitment to rehabilitation. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Cambridge Trust, a private bank offering a full suite of custom financial solutions tailored to its clients. Their team provides private banking, wealth management, and commercial and innovation banking designed to power any ambition. You can visit their offices or connect online at cambridgetrust.com slash waytowealth. It's 56 degrees in Boston, lows in the low 40s overnight under clear skies. A sunny Thursday, tomorrow's temperatures in the upper 50s. On Friday, you can expect plenty of sunshine and highs reaching the low 60s. This is WBUR. Support for NPR comes from this station and from Amazon Business. From small business to big enterprise and everything in between, Amazon Business works to help simplify the supplies buying process. Learn more at amazonbusiness.com. And from Procter & Gamble, maker of Align Probiotic, a daily supplement to support digestive health, containing a probiotic strain developed by gastroenterologists with 20 years of research. More at alignprobiotics.com. This is NPR. This is All Things Considered from NPR News. I'm Elsa Chang in Culver City, California. And I'm Sasha Pfeiffer in Washington. And we have good news to report on one sector of the economy. It's been a strong year for U.S. manufacturing. Factories added nearly a half million jobs in the last 12 months. And numbers this week show factory production in September was the highest in 14 years. NPR's Scott Horsley is covering this. Hi, Scott. Good to be with you. Good to have you. And Scott, rising interest rates have been having an impact on many industries, but it seems like factories keep humming along. What's going on? Yeah, early in the pandemic, when a lot of service-oriented businesses like travel and entertainment saw demand drop off, people were still buying a lot of stuff. And it turns out they're still buying a lot of stuff, even though spending on travel and restaurants has now picked up again. Uh, September was an exceptionally good month for manufacturing, better than forecasters expected. And a lot of that has to do with automakers. Uh, Drew Greenblatt runs a factory in Baltimore, and about 10 months ago, he bought a second plant in Indiana that supplies automakers, among other customers. Since we've bought them, we've grown the company from 33 employees to 53 employees. We've uh, invested in new technology, robotic press brakes, new bathrooms for the employees, it's aggressive push to reinvest back into the factory because we're so enthusiastic and optimistic about the future. And, you know, auto production has been up and down as car makers have struggled with a shortage of computer chips. But September was an up month, and that helped push overall manufacturing to its best performance since 2008. Scott, those chip shortages are one of many challenges factories have been facing in getting the parts and supplies they need. Is that getting any better? It's getting better, although the factory managers I talk to say it's not back to normal. Uh, B.J. Parrott runs Milwaukee Metal Products, a family-owned business that's been around more than a century. She says it's still a challenge to get supplies, and it's also a struggle to find qualified workers. A lot of the baby boomers retired during COVID, and they were the ones that had you know years and years of experience. We've been looking for good qualified welders for oh, probably a year the skilled people, the trained people, are very, very hard to find. Factories did add 22,000 jobs last month. That's a, a slowdown from July and August. But for now, at least, factory payrolls are still expanding. And how does factory employment compare to what it was before the pandemic? 
as of June, factory employment is fully back to where it was before the coronavirus struck. Uh, that was actually two months earlier than the overall employment in the U.S. President Biden likes to boast about what he calls a manufacturing comeback. Some people gave up on American manufacturing. Not me, not the secretary, not the American people. Make it in America is no longer just a slogan. It's a reality in my administration. If you zoom out, though, factory employment is still only about two-thirds of what it was at its peak back in the late 1970s. Uh, Some of the decline since then is the result of foreign competition, especially from China. But economist Betsy Stevenson at the University of Michigan says it's also because today's factories are really efficient, so they just don't need that many workers to generate a whole lot of stuff. Every president wants to increase manufacturing, okay? But the future of jobs is in the service sector because we've become so much more productive at making things. We just only need to spend, you know, a small share of our resources, our people, our time, our factories, our equipment, making stuff. Factory work is also generally more skilled these days, so workers have to know how to handle all that advanced equipment. Scott, as you know, we keep hearing warnings of a possible recession coming. What would that mean for manufacturers? While this week's data says factory production is still growing, there are anecdotal signs that orders might be slowing down. Some factory managers are getting more cautious. A survey earlier this month found that when factory workers quit or retire, they're not necessarily being replaced right away because managers are nervous about slumping demand. We have seen a slowdown in the housing market as interest rates climb, and that's likely to curb demand for some manufactured goods like furniture and appliances. Also, factory exports could be hurt by the strong dollar, which makes U.S. goods more expensive for customers in other countries. All that said, uh, though, factory owners are still optimistic. Drew Greenblatt, who we heard earlier, is expanding his Baltimore factory by more than 50 percent, and he's installing some additional robots next month. We're just seeing the demand, and we want to have the best technology for our people to make it through potentially stormy times. There are undoubtedly some storm clouds ahead, but factories have shown they can weather a lot of challenges. That's NPR's Scott Horsley. Thank you. You're welcome. Iranian athlete Elnaz Rakabi was given a hero's welcome when she returned to Tehran early this morning. Rakabi had just competed in a competitive climbing event in South Korea without wearing the mandatory Islamic headscarf or hijab. She said the lack of headscarf was inadvertent, but as NPR's Peter Kenyon reports, the move happened as women across Iran are demanding changes to the country's religious restrictions on women's dress. It may have been five in the morning when Rakabi's plane touched down at the Tehran airport, but that didn't stop a huge crowd from gathering to welcome and cheer her on. But it seems clear that Rakabi is not looking to become the latest symbol of Iranian women standing up to the regime and demanding more freedoms. From the start of the controversy, Rakabi has maintained that this was no deliberate act of defiance. She said in the rush to get her gear together and be ready for the climb, the hijab got left behind. In an interview with Iranian state television, Rakabi maintained that explanation. Rakabi told the journalist the atmosphere was hectic and her invitation to climb came unexpectedly. She said she got busy arranging her technical climbing equipment and in part because she was in a women's only area, in her haste she forgot the hijab. 
When a follow-up question focused on the political reactions to her climb, Rakabi seemed flustered, saying only, quote, some extremism happened in the story. She apologized to the Iranian people and said she hoped to continue competing and looked forward to another climb. But if Rakabi herself just wants to be an Iranian athlete, others are happy to hail her as a symbol of a new generation of Iranian women who aren't willing to go along with the social restrictions imposed by Iran's cleric-led government. Maryam Rajavi, a leader of the NCRI, the National Council of Resistance of Iran, seized on the widespread public attention being paid to Rakabi's climb to declare that Iran is facing what she called a forward-looking revolution led by women, and she called for some of the most extreme measures short of the use of military force. First, all the embassies of the Iranian regime must be shut down, and all the diplomats of the Iranian regime have to be expelled. Iranian regime should be expelled from all international bodies and all economic ties must be severed. Analysts say nothing that dramatic is likely to occur anytime soon, but the nationwide protests and the reaction to Elnaz Rakabi's case seem to have caught the government in Tehran on the back foot. Observers inside and outside Iran are watching to see if the unrest will begin to die down or if another harsh crackdown is in the offing. Peter Kenyon, NPR News, Istanbul. Listening to All Things Considered from NPR News. Republicans have made inroads with some Latino voters, especially in Texas, but California Latinos have not swung as much. Now, concerns over inflation and gas prices are playing big in one California congressional race. It's the state's Latino majority 22nd district, and both candidates are running to the center. From member station KQED, Marisa Lagos reports. The farm town of Delano, California, is located about two and a half hours northeast of Los Angeles. It's the kind of place many people spend their entire lives. It's already over 80 degrees on a Saturday morning, and Democrat Rudy Salas is sprinting to catch up with his float in the annual Harvest Parade in the center of the Swing District. My parents graduated from Delano High. Exactly. I went to Fremont. Like, this is home. Yeah. <laughs> This is home. That's why we try to do everything that we can. No problem. Thank you. We'll be praying for you. Thank you. I appreciate that. Salas grew up here, and many parade goers greet him by his first name. The GOP incumbent, Congressman David Valadeo, was nowhere to be found this Saturday morning until you turn on the TV, where the attack ads against Salas are unrelenting and feature voters unhappy about the economy. Gas prices have almost doubled for me. I think it's almost tripled. $150. It's not a good feeling. It hurts a little more every time. We had a chance to lower the gas tax. Rudy Salas didn't back it. This district on paper is exactly the sort of pickup opportunity Democrats salivate over. It's the birthplace of the farm workers' labor movement. Latinos make up 59% of the district. And Democrats far outnumber Republicans. But those numbers belie how Democrats have struggled in a region where oil and agriculture are king. Republican Valadeo was also born and raised in this district. His family has farmed here for two generations. 
He's a relatively moderate Republican, one of just 10 who voted to impeach President Donald Trump after the January 6th insurrection. Meanwhile, Democrat Salas, a state assemblyman, has regularly broken with his party to vote with the oil industry. Mike Madrid is a longtime GOP consultant in California who focuses on the Latino vote. I do think that the most interesting thing about that district is it's probably more than any other in the country, really, is you're seeing both candidates crash to the center. That's in contrast to districts where Democratic candidates are running against the oil industry and Republicans are embracing Trump and the big lie. Madrid says while the majority of Latinos will go for Salas, this is a race that will be decided by a few points. So Democrats can't afford to lose any of their base. I don't think there's much of a message that Valadeo has there. Uh, any Republican. Their job is to find as many Hispanics on the margin to peel off and hope that the Democrats can't turn out more than they can peel off. One Latino voter that the GOP has already peeled off is 56-year-old Vince Ruiz. Ruiz was helping his mom sell her art at a barbecue following the Harvest Parade. He feels abandoned by the Democratic Party on economic issues. My mom's a Democrat, but I turn Republican because their values, just regular economics, yeah, economics, jobs, and the economy, and then the deficit. The deficit's not even mentioned anymore. But not everyone blames Democrats. Voter Peter Nevre is 70 years old and says, while gas prices are important... No, I don't blame Rudy Salas. It's the way it is. You know, the gas price is going up because of the, the oil industry. That's why. Nevre says he's known Salas for years and has seen all the good work he's done in the community. For him, that's enough to earn his vote. For NPR News, I'm Marisa Lagos in Delano, California. You're listening to All Things Considered from NPR News. This is 90.9 WBUR. I'm Sharon Brody. It's 5.48 and ahead on All Things Considered, Francesca Royster discusses her new book, Black Country Music, Listening for Revolutions. That and more coming up on All Things Considered. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by the Cabot in Beverly with the Squirrel Nut Zippers and the Dirty Dozen Brass Bands Southern Remedies Tour, Thursday, November 3rd. Tickets at thecabot.org. Coming to WBUR City Space on Friday, October 28th, the Endless Thread podcast team dives into the weird, wild, scary world of bots. For tickets, go to wbur.org events. It's 56 degrees in Boston, lows in the low 40s overnight, a sunny Thursday, tomorrow's highs in the upper 50s, and on Friday, plenty of sunshine and highs in the low 60s. This is WBUR. WBUR supporters include Brookline Bank, where financial solutions are crafted to the needs of your business and delivered with a hands-on approach committed to your success. Learn more at brooklinebank.com. And New England Innovation Academy, preparing middle and high schoolers through human-centered design. Open house tomorrow night, neiacademy.org. The recording was sort of squirreled away for about a year, and then it emerges, made its way into the hands of some reporters at the Los Angeles Times. And when the tape was released last week, it created just a total firestorm in the city. I'm Sabrina Tavernisi. That's today on The Daily from The New York Times. Tonight at 8 on WBUR. From NPR News, this is All Things Considered. I'm Elsa Chang. And I'm Juana Summers. 
Author Francesca Royster was constantly surrounded by country music growing up in Nashville, but as a Black queer woman, she struggled to connect. I never really knew my place in it or heard my own story or my own voice in this sound. Until her daughter started listening to Lil Nas X. Hearing her and her friends listen to this music over and over again, I thought, well, that, that has a lot of country elements to it. This is a song where I hear the spirit of Black resistance and creativity, and also a kind of sense of humor about country. It just got me digging into the future of the genre where some of the limits and gatekeepers are, are less important. And that's exactly what she does in her new book, Black Country Music, Listening for Revolutions. In it, Royster explores the way in which listening to country music can be loaded for Black people, a discomfort she compares to coming out. In my own neighborhood, there's a country music bar, and I've only gone a few times just because of the perception of being not welcome or being an intruder. And sometimes that feeling of moving in spaces that feel very uh, protected and patrolled is what coming out feels like to me, you know, as a queer woman too. That looking over your shoulder feeling is something that it's not an accident. I think it, it is part of the ways that country sometimes operates in our culture to cement an idea of a certain kind of, of whiteness that, you know, those of us who might not fit those uh, identities are meant to feel outside. And she says that outsider status even applied to Black performers, like country music star Charlie Pride. He would sometimes open his shows with jokey disclaimers to a room of largely white faces. I said, ladies and gentlemen, I realize it's kind of unique me coming out here on a country music show wearing this permanent tan. And he would, he would use humor, the humor of kind of having this impressive tan as a way to get people laughing and then kind of move on from there. They say that time will heal all wounds in mice and men. I think actually it was a very savvy way to pay attention and just kind of name the elephant in the room of his blackness and then move on. I'd like to turn to another artist that you write about, and I have to confess, I was not too familiar with Tina Turner's first solo album, Tina Turns the Country On, that came out back in 1974. Put us in place, where was this album situated in Tina Turner's incredible career? So Tina Turner made this album at a point when she had already reached an incredible amount of notoriety as part of the Ike and Tina Turner Review. It's a cover album, and she makes it when she is on the verge of separating from Ike Turner. And I, I can't help but think that these songs aren't shaped by where her life was. And just this experience of having um, survived this tumultuous marriage that also included incredible artistic control over over the kinds of music that she could cover. Is there an example of a song that speaks to that? I really love her cover of Chris Christopherson's Help Me Make It Through the Night. I don't care if it's right or wrong. 
you know, the lyrics are also a seduction in a way, but I think under underlying it is this incredible feeling of loneliness. So when I was listening, I was listening to Tina's voice, which feels to me her own take on Chris Christopherson's vulnerability, but, you know, given a Black woman's kind of framework of experience. I don't want to be alone. So to me, it's such a strong song. Help me make it through the night. And one where you really see the drama and the intimacy that country music can offer. Francesca, culture and music both can evolve quickly, and it's a space that is full of innovation and reinvention. When you think of the future of Black country music, what do you think it might look like and sound like? Well, I think that what is so absolutely awesome is the ways that some of the Black country artists are opening up hybrids of sounds and storytelling that wasn't there before. So I'm thinking about Valerie June. Well, if you're tired and feeling so lonely, you're weak who isn't exclusively a country music artist. If you had somebody. But who's definitely drawing a lot on her own country roots and interest in country music traditions in the kind of new music that she's making. And I'm thinking of um, some subcultural folks like um, Camera Thomas or Delilah Black. And they're also like bringing together country with protest music, country with punk. I feel like this kind of like experimental work with country music sound and storytelling is going to influence the genre as a whole, even when it's not happening necessarily on the main stages of country music like the Grand Ole Opry. Earlier, you talked about how there is a bar in your neighborhood that plays country music and you don't often go, and you talked about that discomfort for many Black people, including yourself, of being in these largely white spaces where country music is front and center. And I I guess I wonder if over time, do you think that there are more spaces that are evolving for Black country fans like yourself to feel safe? I think that they are evolving. Maybe the next thing I should do after this is to open my own country music bar. But I think that part of what's changing is the ways that artists are banding together to organize and perform collaboratively. And I think when the performers are also finding safety in numbers, I think that that's also um, something that might change the future for listeners as well. And just to be very clear here, if you open that Black Country Bar, you've got to invite all of us. Absolutely, yes, definitely, definitely. (laughs) Francesca Royster is the author of Black Country Music, Listening for Revolutions. It's out now, thank you so much. Thank you, Anna, this is great.
You're listening to All Things Considered from NPR News. Support for NPR comes from this station and from Japaigo, committed to delivering transformative healthcare solutions for women and families. Japaigo believes that where a person lives should not determine if they live. More at jhpiego.org. And from the American Lung Association and Pfizer, working together to raise awareness of pneumococcal pneumonia. Information on adult vaccinations for pneumococcal pneumonia is at lung.org slash pneumococcal. And from Workday, committed to helping organizations adapt to change, using real-time data to uncover insights, stay decision-ready, and prepare for whatever's next. The finance, HR, and planning system for a changing world. This is 90.9 WBUR. Good evening. I'm Sharon Brody. It is 56 degrees in Boston, coming up on 6 o'clock as All Things Considered continues. Lows in the low 40s tonight. Tomorrow, sunshine highs in the upper 50s. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Salem State University School of Graduate Studies. Advance your career and become a leader in your profession. SalemState.edu slash graduate. And Sunbug Solar, helping to grow renewable energy in Massachusetts since 2009. To learn about solar energy employment opportunities, visit sunbugsolar.com. I'm healthcare reporter Martha Biebinger, and this is 90.9 WBUR FM Boston, 92.7 WBUA Tisbury, and 89.1 WBUH Brewster. Listen anytime with our app or at WBUR.org. WBUR, Boston's NPR news station. A year after Boston officials said the tent encampment near Mass and Cass had to go, one organization has moved 150 people into permanent housing. The minute that you close that door behind you and you have your own space and your own bed and your own kitchen, you can start to think about your legal problems, your family issues, your substance use issues. It's Wednesday, October 19th. This is WBUR's All Things Considered. Good evening, I'm Sharon Brody, in for Lisa Mullins. Coming up, Russian President Vladimir Putin has ordered martial law in four Russian-occupied territories of Ukraine. And nonprofits are trying to help the thousands of undocumented Venezuelan migrants in the U.S. legally as they await immigration court hearings. Their first question is, hey, where can I get work? And I'm like, hey, legally you have to get a work permit. But they don't yet qualify for work permits. It's 6.01. First, this news. Live from NPR News in Washington, I'm Jack Spear. The U.S. will release 15 million barrels of oil from the U.S. Strategic Petroleum Reserve in December. As NPR's Barbara Sprunt explains, the move wraps up an unprecedented release of 180 million barrels that began earlier in the year after Russia invaded Ukraine, driving up oil and gas prices. President Biden says the government will buy oil to replenish the strategic reserve when prices fall from current levels to roughly $70 per barrel. In the meantime, he's calling on oil companies to lower gas prices and boost production. You're sitting on record profits. And you're and we're giving you more certainty so you can act now to increase oil production now. 
The cost of gasoline has been a consistent rallying message in the midterm elections, but Biden pushed back on suggestions that his decision to release more oil from the reserve is politically motivated. Barbara Sprint and Pierre News, the White House. As his forces continue to pummel Ukraine using drones and missiles, Russian leader Vladimir Putin now has embarked on further escalation, declaring martial law in four illegally annexed Ukrainian regions. Putin also appears to be setting the stage for new restrictions and further crackdowns throughout Russia as his invasion of Ukraine has faltered in recent weeks. Putin's order, in essence, flies in the face of recent efforts by the Kremlin to portray life in the next regions of Ukraine as returning to normal. Human Rights Watch says Russian forces tortured Ukrainian detainees in the eastern city of Azum. As NPR's Franco Ordonez reports, the group describes beatings, electric shocks, and waterboarding. The watchdog group identified at least seven locations in the recently liberated city, Azum, including two schools where survivors said soldiers had detained and abused them. Human Rights Watch investigators spoke with over 100 people in Azum who were there during the Russian occupation of the city. Fifteen of those described being tortured. Almost all of them knew a family member or friend who had been tortured. The city served as a regional hub for Russian forces during the six-month occupation. Its liberation helped mark a big shift in the war when a Ukrainian counteroffensive took back thousands of miles of territory. But in Isum and other cities, they discovered horrible acts had taken place. Franco Ordonez, NPR News, Kharkiv, Ukraine. German automaker BMW says it intends to invest a billion dollars in its plant near Spartanburg, South Carolina. The investment going toward the automaker's production of electric vehicles with an additional $700 million going towards building an electric battery plant. The German automaker's announcement reflects a commitment to transitioning towards electric vehicle production in North America. Stocks after two straight up sessions moved modestly in the other direction today. The Dow was down 99 points. The Nasdaq fell 91 points. You're listening to NPR. This is 90.9 WBUR. I'm Sharon Brody in Boston. People experiencing homelessness no longer will be allowed to gather and set up tents along part of Southampton Street in Boston. Mayor Michelle Wu says the area has become too dangerous with people walking in traffic and almost being hit by cars. Earlier today, the city told people to move their tents and belongings to a side street instead. About a year ago, the city removed hundreds of tents from that area, the epicenter of the region's homelessness and opiate crisis. Wu says the city will continue to provide services to those in need and says more funding is needed to meet the demand. The price of home heating oil in the state is increasing. The Department of Energy Resources says the average price is $5.71 a gallon. That is up nearly $2.5 from this time last year and up more than 40 cents from last week. Next Tuesday, Massachusetts Congresswoman Ayanna Presley and Senator Elizabeth Warren are hitting the road together. WBUR's Amanda Beeland reports the four-city tour will focus on getting as many people as possible signed up for student loan debt forgiveness. More than 800,000 Massachusetts residents are eligible for debt relief, up to $20,000. Congresswoman Presley tells Radio Boston the road trip's goal is to reach those who may have trouble accessing the online application. People like the elderly and those without technology. It's not true if you build it, they will come if folks don't know about it. And we we know just uh, how meaningful this relief is and we want everyone who's eligible uh, to benefit from it. The lawmakers will visit Boston, Brockton, Springfield and Worcester. 
Presley says more than 12 million Americans have already submitted applications for relief. For 90.9 WBUR, I'm Amanda Beland. This is STEM Week statewide, and today at the Museum of Science in Boston, the focus of the celebration has been the Massachusetts State Dinosaur. Governor Baker held a ceremonial signing of the bill that names the state's official dino. Podocosaurus holiocensis. Baker says people united during the pandemic to push for the bill alongside State Representative Jack Lewis. And I do want to give the kids who were fascinated with dinosaurs a lot of credit for making this day possible and working with Representative Lewis to give a tough, spunky underdog from Holyoke the opportunity to be the dinosaur here in the Commonwealth of Massachusetts. The state dinosaur stood about five feet tall and weighed about 90 pounds. In the forecast, lows in the low 40s overnight under clear skies. A sunny Thursday, tomorrow's highs in the upper 50s. Friday should be sunny with temperatures in the low 60s. For the weekend, sunshine highs Saturday in the upper 60s, Sunday in the mid-60s. This is 90.9 WBUR. WBUR supporters include Yarl and Pamela Moan, focusing on civil liberties, foster youth, public radio, and the arts. From NPR News, this is All Things Considered. I'm Elsa Chang in Culver City, California. And I'm Sasha Pfeiffer in Washington. For close to two months, Ukraine has been reclaiming land that Russia occupied early in its invasion. Today, Russian President Vladimir Putin seemed to signal his frustration. He ordered martial law in four Russian-occupied territories of Ukraine, the same territories Russia just annexed unilaterally. That move likely signals more restrictions in occupied Ukraine and in Russia itself. NPR's Charles Maines is in Moscow and has details. Hi, Charles. Hi there. What did Putin have to say? You know, well, Putin made this announcement in a video address to his security council. Uh, you know, as you note, that the headline here was imposing martial law on these lands that he annexed uh, based on the results of staged referendums to join the Russian Federation. Those were done in violation of international law. But the thing to remember is that even then, you know, Russia never had full control over these territories. And in the weeks since, Ukraine has seized back large portions of land with Russian forces repeatedly withdrawing and even civilians being asked to relocate. And all of this much to Putin's frustration. Let's listen. So here Putin says that what he called regime in Kiev has refused to recognize the will of the people. Russia carried out these referendum votes, and instead of sitting down at the negotiating table, Ukraine keeps fighting. So today's announcement is Putin trying to crush this uh, Ukrainian counteroffensive by tapping even more of his security apparatus, and he's doing that by arguing Ukraine is now actually attacking the Russian homeland, uh, thereby triggering measures like martial law. Practically speaking, what does martial law mean both for Ukrainians in these occupied territories and for Russians? Well, Putin essentially tasked his government and security apparatus to come up with ideas to reestablish control over these lands. He's also imposed heightened security levels in regions adjacent to Ukraine, as well as slightly lower ones in Moscow and southern Russia. And, and all of these moves give the government all sorts of extrajudicial powers. Uh, you know, everything from travel restrictions, search and seizure, police can now detain people for up to one month without bringing charges, a forced resettlement. Uh, but the key is implementation. You know, for example, right away, the Kremlin said they had no intention of sealing the border. Uh, but that's far from a guarantee, and certainly not much of one for government critics who already faced enormous pressure. 
How are people reacting to this? Well, it's mixed, as you might imagine. But let's start with Ukraine. You know, a top aide to President Volodymyr Zelensky said martial law in these occupied regions really doesn't change much. Uh, Kiev argues people there were already de facto living in a police state, uh, although it's worth pointing out that Ukraine itself has been under martial law since February. Uh, Russian governors say they don't plan to introduce new restrictions, at least not yet. But keep in mind, this comes on the back of governors being blamed for a very troubled and unpopular mobilization drive to get additional troops into Ukraine. So, so perhaps the local authorities are sensitive to that. And yet, in a more worrying sign, uh, nationalists who increasingly seem to have Putin's ear when it comes to Ukraine are cheering the news. Uh, for example, Ramzan Kadyrov, the strongman head of the Chechen Republic, uh, took to social media to say this was an excellent and long-awaited move. And he's among a group uh, that seems to argue that the only way Russia can win this conflict is by getting tougher. And increasingly, that looks to me not only with its military campaign against Ukraine, well, where we've seen all these recent intense bombardments of Ukrainian cities, uh, but also in Russia now uh, with a further crackdown on perceived enemies at home. That's NPR's Charles Maines in Moscow. Charles, thank you for covering this for us. Thank you. Today, New York City opened a temporary emergency shelter to house and care for hundreds of migrants arriving daily on buses from the border. A record number of Venezuelan migrants have fled to the U.S. this year, and we have an update now about one of them. We first met Jose Albernoz about a month ago when he had just crossed the Rio Grande into Texas, and he came face to face with a local rancher. I'm exhausted, he said, adding that he had started walking at three in the morning. Albernoz turned himself in to the Border Patrol. A few days later, he was released into the U.S. And now, like many Venezuelan migrants, he finds himself in a kind of legal limbo. And Pierre's Joel Rose picks up the story from here. Jose Albornoz has only been in the U.S. for a few weeks, but things have been happening fast for him. His original plan was to head to New York and meet up with a friend from Venezuela. But when he got there, his friend had lined up construction jobs for both of them in Montana. He said, yeah, let's go. I came here to work. When you arrive here, you're lost, he says. You land in a completely unknown world. Albernoz is trying to make sense of where he is. He doesn't have a work permit, but he does have permission to be in the U.S. temporarily, which protects him from deportation. I'm undocumented, he says, but I'm not illegal. This immigration purgatory, lawfully present but not able to work legally, is where tens of thousands of Venezuelan migrants now find themselves. They've been released into the U.S. with a notice to appear in immigration court or instructions to check in with ICE when they get to their destinations. But the next steps? Those are not so clear. They're not getting the things that they need, the information that they need. They don't know their rights. You know, they don't even know how to get around the city. Jay Alfaro is a social worker at the Church of the Holy Apostles in New York, which runs a soup kitchen a few blocks away from the Port Authority bus terminal in Manhattan. Señoritas, que están esperando? Ropa. Okay, está bien. Lately, the church is serving hundreds of Venezuelan migrants a week with food and clothing. Alfaro says they all want to know the same thing. Their first question is, hey, where can I get work? And I'm like, hey, legally you have to get a work permit, you know? Uh, this is New York City, so we know there's kind of workarounds for that. Um, but I tell them, listen, you got to be careful, you know? 
Immigration authorities have just launched a new program that will allow up to 24,000 Venezuelan migrants to live and work in the U.S. legally. But the only way to get in is to apply from abroad. That means it won't help tens of thousands of Venezuelans who've already been allowed into the U.S. temporarily, including at least 20,000 in New York City alone. Many of those migrants could qualify for work permits eventually, but only after they've officially applied for asylum. That's not a quick or easy process, and these migrants say they can't afford to wait. Henderson Orlando holds up his phone. Look, he says, on the cracked screen, there's a video of flooding and destruction in his hometown in Venezuela. My family lost their home, Orlando says. I'm desperate to find work here, and I haven't found anything. Orlando is one of hundreds of Venezuelan migrants, all single men, staying at a shelter in an old armory building in Brooklyn. We spoke with several men on the street outside the shelter. 40-year-old Alexander Rosa says he worked as a massage therapist back home. Now the father of five says he's struggling to find any work at all because he doesn't have the right documents. When you try to get work in construction, they ask you for OSHA certification, Rosa says. If you don't have that, you can't work. If you don't have a social security number, you can't work. 2,000 miles away in Montana, Jose Albernoz has found what all the migrants in New York want, stable employment. There are many possibilities here, he says. If you come here ready to work, you have plenty of opportunity to pick yourself up. Albernoz is making decent money, $20 an hour, but he has other problems. Albernoz is sharing a hotel room with his friend because he needs a credit history in order to rent a place of his own. And he has document issues, too. I haven't been able to open a bank account because my Venezuelan passport has expired, he says. And the closest place he can renew it is in Mexico. That's going to be hard, Albernoz says, but I'll overcome it. Joel Rose, NPR News, New York. To New York City now, where Sanitation Commissioner Jessica Tisch made a big announcement. We are about to do something that no one has had the political will or political capital to pull off over the past 50 years. The rats are absolutely going to hate this announcement, but the rats don't run this city. We do. That's right. Starting April 1st, 2023, New Yorkers will only be able to put their trash outside after 8 p.m. instead of after 4 p.m. Tish explained this is part of a move to try to curb the city's infamous rat problem. The biggest swing that you can take at cleaning up our streets is to shut down the all-night, all-you-can-eat rat buffet. Mayor Eric Adams joined Tish in the announcement with some of his own anti-rat views. Everyone that knows me, they know one thing, I hate rats. When we started killing them in Borough Hall, you know, some of the same folks are criticizing us now called me a murderer because I was killing rats. Well, you know what, we're going to kill rats. And council member Sean Abreu had more choice words about the city's rodents. We are taking the fight to the rats. This is not ratatouille. Rats are not our friends. 
Maybe I'm a different kind of rat. Maybe you're not a rat at all. Maybe that's a good thing. Hey! So, sorry, <laughs> Remy. It looks like you and your friends are going to have a slightly harder time finding garbage to eat from now on. But whether that'll make a noticeable dent in New York City's rat population remains to be seen. He's a TV star with multiple Emmy Awards, a Peabody, and millions of books sold. And now he's stepping into the podcasting world. We are talking about the beloved PBS character, Arthur the Aardvark. Hear more about Arthur's new podcast tomorrow afternoon on All Things Considered. Listen on the radio or try asking your smart speaker to play your local member station by name. You're listening to All Things Considered from NPR News. This is 90.9 WBUR. I'm Sharon Brody. It's 618 and coming up on WBUR's All Things Considered, how a local nonprofit has led the effort to find housing for people who are living in a tent encampment at Mass and Cass in Boston. And a reminder, tomorrow night at 8, Maura Healy and Jeff Deal will square off in the Massachusetts governor's debate. You'll get live coverage tomorrow at 8 p.m. on WBUR and WBUR.org. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Cambridge Trust, a private bank offering a full suite of custom financial solutions tailored to its clients. Their team provides private banking, wealth management, and commercial and innovation banking designed to power any ambition. You can visit their offices or connect online at cambridgetrust.com slash waytowealth. In business news, the State Highway Department appears to be bucking the trend in terms of filling job vacancies. Highway Administrator Jonathan Gulliver says his department has added more than 100 people to its total headcount this year and says most of the new employees are engineers and project managers. This comes in spite of an attrition rate that's nearly doubled since before the pandemic. On Wall Street, the Dow dropped 99 points today to close at 30,423. The S&P closed down 24 points at 3695. The Nasdaq ended the day down 91 points at 10,680. Marketplace has a full range of business news at 6:30 here on WBUR. WBUR supporters include Boston Ballets as anticipated with works by choreographer William Forsyth, including a world premiere November 3rd to 13th. Tickets at bostonballet.org. And Xfinity Internet committed to delivering Internet service over a gig, designed to power your devices while fitting your budget. More at Xfinity.com slash gig. Stay informed about a full range of developments in the news. Listen on the WBUR mobile app while you're working out or heading out the door to work. It is 53 degrees in Boston. Clear skies tonight. Lows dropping to the low 40s overnight. A sunny Thursday. Temperatures in the upper 50s. On Friday, you can expect sunshine with highs reaching the low 60s. This is 90.9 WBUR. WBUR supporters include Delta Dental, reminding you that a healthy smile is a powerful thing. Discover the connection between oral and overall health at expressyourhealthma.org. This is WBUR's All Things Considered. I'm Lisa Mullins. When someone is homeless and sleeps on the street, it's not easy to help them find a permanent home and adjust to a new way of life. 
Now imagine what it's like to help 150 people do that. That's what workers from the nonprofit Elliott Community Human Services have done in Boston over the past year. They've led the effort to find housing for people who were living in a tent encampment near the intersection of Massachusetts Avenue and Melnia Cass Boulevard, or Mass and Cass. One year ago today, the city declared it a public health emergency. It had become an open-air drug market where disease outbreaks and assaults were common. Elliott Community Human Services already had been working with people there. It was certainly overwhelming to be in that area and to you know have this list of close to 180 clients that we're trying to locate in a large tent encampment. Mark Bradshaw directs Elliott's housing programs. He says he and his colleagues took it one task at a time. Realistically, what our motto was from the beginning was to get one thing done a day for each client, and that could just be even one conversation. Elliott's teams usually go about their jobs quietly. Their work is largely unheralded, but could be considered heroic. Bradshaw and his colleagues went over to Mass and Cass every day. They were armed with mobile printers and forms for their clients to fill out once they could find the clients. You have to kind of get used to the layout of the actual tent encampment and know that this client's tent is on that corner, this client's tent is on that street. I've seen tents that, you know, have bookshelves and bureaus and TVs. I've seen tents that are tarps that are being held together by really shoddy poles and cement blocks. It's a wide spectrum, but realistically, they're all clients' homes. And it's our job to respect their space and to meet them where they are. What that looks like is going into that tent and doing that housing application in that tent. Allie Fisk directs outreach and engagement programs for Elliott. I think that the first thing that crossed a lot of our minds was that everybody had a story before this, um, and that was really important to us to get to know what that was. They used to play rugby for 20 years or, you know, all these really fun facts. It allowed us to really build rapport and to start establishing trust in the way that we were really wanting to get to know people. So people know each other. They've established a certain rapport with each other. You're coming in and saying, we want to move you elsewhere. Even if you're saying, we want something better for you. We want a safe, healthy place for you to be. How did you approach that? So I think we approached it in a way where we were understanding of the fact that people have been marginalized. They're homeless and, you know, experiencing substance use disorders and all sorts of mental health issues and not framing it in a way that we wanted to take anybody out of their community and move them elsewhere. But really, we want to make this right. A lot of the times when I tell my staff to, you know, frame this transition from the client is the minute that they're inside that apartment, it becomes a million times easier the minute that you close that door behind you and you have your own space and your own bed and your own kitchen. You can start to think about your legal problems, your family issues, your substance use issues, whatever they are, the minute you're inside, all of those issues become manageable. The folks from Elliott say many people they encounter on the street don't feel worthy of a better life, so the outreach workers try to show them they are. Hope Wiedenhofer oversees Elliott's programs that help keep people stable once they've got a home. She says her team asks clients about their goals so they can find purpose. You can put someone in an apartment, but they may not have a community. They may not have hobbies, right? They may not have things that make them happy throughout the day. I had a client who wanted to join a choir. She loves to sing. I've gotten multiple people pets. 
you know, taking care of something, right? Like a, a cat, that gives you purpose. We've got multiple people, bicycles, um, painting supplies, going back to school, going and getting a job, all sorts of things that you and I kind of take for granted, but living on the street, you don't have the opportunity to do. And once you get housed, you, you do have the opportunity to do those things. Some clients reunite with family. Wiedenhofer says there are big challenges too, but Elliot steps in to make sure as many people as possible hang on to their housing. I will also say we are serving over 170 stabilization clients right now and have less than a 1% eviction rate. We're the liaison between the landlord and the client. We help make that relationship such that the client can stay in that housing. There are a lot of other programs that have a sobriety requirement in order to get housing. We operate on a housing first model. So we have clients with substance use disorders, you know, have never seen a therapist or a psychiatrist. And getting housing is the first step to then meet with a psychiatrist, you know, pursue maybe a detox or a treatment center. But that's definitely not even close to a requirement for housing for us. Let me ask the other side of that question, though. I mean, if people are not sober, if they uh, have a problem with addiction, if they don't have a job, if they're in poor health, how are they going to maintain housing? we create a team around them. You know, they have a stabilization service provider and stabilization service provider knows psychiatrists, knows doctors, you know, it helps get them Ubers to the doctor whenever they need it or go to the methadone clinic in the morning. I've definitely called people at 7 a.m. and said, are you on your way to methadone right now? If not, I will get you an Uber. It's a team that we create around these people. The biggest issue that we have come up when a client moves into units is not any substance use issues, it's not any mental health issues, it's not them damaging the unit, it's legitimately them bringing in their friends who are sleeping outside because they feel bad for them sleeping outside. Typically, their friends see them move in and they see a warm roof over their friend's head and they want to sleep on the couch. You have to have some pretty frank conversations with clients about, you know, obviously we understand where you're coming from, but you worked really hard to attain this housing. So you have to, you know, find a different spot for your friends if you want to keep this apartment. Um, and we will do our best to work with your friends to find them housing as well. So you said 1% or less than 1% have been evicted. What is your goal for determining success? Our success is that if all of these clients are still in housing and they're living, you know, stabilized, normal lives, that is our success. We want to see them happy and thriving and settling into their new apartments. And we don't want to see folks back on the street. We don't want to see folks evicted. We want to wrap services around them and let them just go about their lives. That was Mark Bradshaw, Hope Wiedenhofer, and Allie Fisk. They direct housing, stabilization, and outreach programs for Elliott Community Human Services. Over the past year, the organization has found permanent housing for 150 people who were living on the streets of Boston's Mass and Cass area. This note, people still congregate around Mass and Cass nine months after the encampment was cleared. And nearly 200 people who were living there are still waiting for permanent housing. They are now in transitional housing and shelter programs the city set up. At WBUR.org, you can find the story of one man who was living at Mass and Cass but has since been housed with Elliot's help, Revere native and former Red Sox minor league pitcher Mike Spinelli. 
We are funded by you, our listeners, and by the MBTA, helping tens of thousands of people reach their destinations every day. The MBTA is hiring across multiple departments. The T offers competitive salaries, solid benefits, and established paths for growth. For more information and to apply today, visit mbta.com careers. And Tapas 529 in Melrose for sharing and sampling Spanish and Mediterranean taste sensations. Reserving now for private holiday parties, tapas529.com.